we, I'm going double glazed and I'm living in single glazed house. Oh my god! Yeah. And I was, it's, it's, it's like what? It's, it's really bad. Minus three. Oh, there I am. Hello. There I am. I'm back. Hello, everyone. We're live, Donald, on the group again. So, welcome back. Um, I'm working on a new screen right now. Forty-nine inches wide. You know. All right. Biggie legs. I'm looking into the camera now. Hello, everyone. Hello, hello, hello. Evening, evening, evening. The big dawn of Love Island is, is a talking values today. Virtues, values. Hello, everyone. I need to get the other questions up, actually. How did I end up in Love Island? I, don't, I, just, I just need to see it happen, you know. All right. Your shirt basically is getting. Oh, so just it's just because I wore that shirt. Basically, yeah. Yeah. Oh, we're going off, but I think we do need some philosophy on the on the on Love Island. I think it'll blow minds. You know, they don't even know. Some of them don't even know if like Italy's a country and stuff like that. So is that right? Is that what they said? I mean, somebody tells them like somehow, but majority aren't. Well, oh yeah, your Donald's wearing his worry hat because. Come on, worry hat on. Like it's getting bad. Like, I'm worried about the snow outside. Can handle it. What do you reckon? Do you reckon it snowed much two thousand years ago? Was there any evidence for it? The weather was quite different in a lot of places. I was I was listening to an audio book about that by a historian a few weeks ago, and they were going into a lot of detail about geological evidence and stuff about uh, textual evidence about how the climate was different and things. Like it used to rain a lot more in Italy. Funnily enough, he was talking about in the in this like even in the summer. Because they know, because the River Tiber flooded, like so. Uh, it's interesting, like, and maybe it was colder here because they talk about the Greeks. Diogenes the Cynic used to hug statues, like strip naked and hug bronze statues to endure hardship to toughen himself up. But it doesn't get that cold here normally. They'd only be able to do it like one day a year. So maybe it was colder back in the day. You think it'd be more? I don't know. Why? Why, why do I think it'd have been warmer for? To know, they were wearing togas and stuff. They were all good. You've gone on mute. From, you've gone mute from now. I've gone mute. Oh, there you are. You're back. Yeah, they were in. They were wearing to... togas, so they must have been quite warm in it. Unless they were really hardcore men. I think they were just tough. Yeah. They were made of sterner stuff back in those days, Scott. Like not like you and I. We've grown soft from too much Netflix and sushi and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well. I mean, most of us have gone soft, yeah. But it probably is a problem as well. I think everybody wants this, like, dream life from the movies. Like, like I remember you saying about... Um, I think you're on mute. I think you've gone off again. No, it's just probably... Is it just muting me if I don't speak for a while? I think can you hear so. me now? I can hear you now, yeah. You, yeah. Were, you were saying the, like, romance back in those days was completely different to romance now. Yeah, like, um, and it varied in different countries and stuff, but in ancient Athens, um, like, most women were almost treated like slaves. Like, they, they didn't go out of the house, um, except there was very limited where women could go, um, except certain women, like priestesses and, uh, like, high-class uh, prostitutes. Um, courtesans like led a, a, a more a freer life in a sense but uh, women were, were treated like commodities 
in, uh, in ancient Athens. And uh, actually, someone told me, one of the, the people at the, one of the institutes here, at the American School for Classical Studies, they, have, uh, they wore painted masks and uh, the, the masks in the theater, in the theater. So the, the masks of men were brown and the masks of women were white because the audience's preconception was that women had really pale skin because they didn't go outdoors much. <laughs> the guys all had amazing tans because they were outside all the time. They used to wrestle naked. That's, you know, that's where the word gymnasium comes from. It means naked. Gymnos means naked in Greek. So like they, uh, they thought um, people should exercise in the nude. Like they would wrestle and box and stuff like out in these sports grounds in the sun. So they must have had amazing all over tans. Who made that rule up and the naked rule? I don't know. It's yeah. just a, it was just put down, laid down in laws like at the beginning of time. Oh my days. And so they'd all get naked and they'd go, you have to, it's the rules. And it's the law in Athens. I wonder when I changed, who changed that law? Who, who finally said, you know what, enough of this. I've had enough. I've had enough. <laughs> Guys need to cover up when you're wrestling. I've got, I suspect it might have been Christianity. Like, you know, when priests and churches and things came along, they maybe thought we're going to need a few changes right about here in <laughs> Athens. In ancient Athens. Wild. Oh, my days. Yeah, they would have had a, you know, a nightmare with that because they weren't to do anything with me. Well, hope everyone's learned a lot there from those old months of uh, Athens. Eh? Any other comments, let me know. But just wait. I think we'll, there's like 85 in the moment. We'll wait to see people coming in. Seven minutes past. Donald, give us a rundown of what we're talking about today. Eh? We're talking about values. Values. Virtues and how to live more consistently in accord with your values. So we have a little bit of ancient philosophy, a little bit of stoicism, a little bit of... Socrates, we're going to have a little bit of modern evidence-based psychotherapy, you know, all things you like, Scott, basically. And uh, I've got some questions, some deep questions. Yeah. Like, I've got, and I've got like maybe one or two little stories, you know, just about are you actually living in accord with your values? And also, like, I'm going to talk about how people sometimes can appear to be extremely busy like running around like a headless chicken. Oh, yeah. Maybe doing nothing of value. Oh, that happens all the time. That happens a lot. All the time. All yeah. the time. What are you doing? I'm busy. Oh, yeah, but what are you doing? I don't know. <laughs> Twitter for an hour, going back on my phone, writing one uh-huh. email on Twitter again. It's called, I love, there's a good book and it's called Deep Work by Carl Newport. Oh, yeah. about Quite interesting. Have you heard of the, so I come across this book in uh, Be Water, my friend, by Shannon Lee, the four, the four, the four arrangements, the four arrangements. I don't think so. By the ancient Toltec people of Mexico. You heard of them? Yeah. Toltec? They've got yeah. some philosophy to the Stoics in a way. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Kind of interesting how, and it seems Buddhism, there's, there's definitely strong links between all of them. Yeah, they were talking about how other people's, um, what other people say is not up, is it like nothing to do with you, which is kind of like stoicism where, you mm-hmm. know. Yeah. Reality. Well, people think a lot of ancient philosophies, looking back, have many things in common. And maybe it's just because we're, we're the only ones that are getting it wrong. 
you know, yeah. like it's like it's maybe uh, maybe just that we've deviated so much from what used to be common sense the world over. Yeah, you're right. But isn't it isn't it crazy that you know these are in South America, Mexico, then you had the Stoics yeah. in you know Europe, then you had the Far East, all coming to similar conclusions at the same time. That's often been said, like in particular, yeah, in the Axial Age, people sometimes call it. Like there's this period like when they reckon that Buddhism and the Upanishads and like uh, Taoism and like uh, Greek philosophy originated sort of like roughly around the same time. Like everybody suddenly had a eureka moment. <laughs> you know, Boom. Simultaneously, like all in, came up with similar ideas. Yeah. I like uh, it's often been noted. There's um as reading as well. There's a lot of there seems to be like a, a strong Buddhism link to German philosophers like Nietzsche and stuff like that. Loved a bit of Buddhism, didn't they? Schopenhauer, like it was uh, Schopenhauer is the one that's most into Buddhism actually. Hmm. He was a uh, Nietzsche was kind of originally a, a bit of a follower of Schopenhauer. He was influenced by him. And uh, Nietzsche's kind of influenced by he was he he'd read Buddhism. He was into it a little bit, but Schopenhauer much more so. That's good, yeah, because I, I read a quote that Nietzsche, however you say his name, would proclaim he was the Buddha of Europe or something. <laughs> uh, nice one, boy. No, you're not, mate. You're not a Buddha of Europe. Not at all. I reckon what we do today, Donald, is we're going to start with some questions, if you don't mind. Uh -huh. Yeah. Away. So what is a warm-up? And then warm we'll get up. into it, and then we'll just the slides and talk about the uh, values and stuff. I'm just adjusting my wee tartan blanket on my knees. Do you, see it? Do you know Wales beat Scotland on the weekend in rugby, yeah? One point, just let you know. Is that true? Yeah. You're making that up, The dragon slayed the... No. I guess, for the... For the that's like, that's... You tell me that at the beginning. Like... Do you know what was interesting, mind? Do you know what I was reading up about a lot of Welsh history? The Welsh used to call mm -hmm. somewhere the Old North. They used to call this place called the Old North, which is basically Scotland. Really? I didn't know that. Called the Hain Ogled. So it's definitely like a strong connection back in ancient times to the north, where Scotland and, and Wales, obviously. Um, okay. Here we go. The dragon's lady. <laughs> okay, so what do you think about being values-driven in society that is driven by a few specific aspects, money, status, and power? How can we navigate through this? Is it rare to find values-driven company to work for, for example. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, that's what you're saying. That's from Arusa. I think I'm saying that right. Yeah, that's a good question, right? It's a big problem. There's a problem in the ancient world as well. I really think it's something that's uh, inherent to society in general. I think it's part of our constitution that we naturally, in a society, gravitate towards being more focused on external goals uh, like wealth and property and what other people think of us. Like, and it takes an effort to see through that, like the smoke and mirrors, like the, the Stoics used to call it tifos um, or tufos, like the smoke, uh, the mist, the kind of illusion of society's prevailing values, consumerism, materialism, like all this kind of stuff. It's difficult, it takes an effort. In the ancient world, they thought it took a real effort to try and smash through that and realize that true happiness, you know, I mean, today, look at, look at how ridiculous we are, right? You know, throughout all of history, people have had less than we have today. 
like throughout all of history, like people like have had less than most of the poorest people in first world societies have today. Like, and yet we're not satisfied. Mm. We're never satisfied. We always want to have more. But most of the people throughout history were reasonably satisfied with what they had. They got on with their lives and stuff, but it's never good enough. Like, yeah. So that's what happens when you're focused on external goals. Like, and as you get older, I think, you have more and more opportunity to review your life, especially during the pandemic. It's a shock. It's a wake-up call to a lot of people. You know, you have a brush with death or you start to kind of like, you know, be concerned about a public health crisis. And maybe you think, is this, all, is this what it's all about? You know, is it, is it all just about the rat race and stuff like that? Maybe there's more to life than this. And you start to kind of like reappraise your values. Hopefully you have an existential crisis. Scott, have you ever had one of those? Like hmm. midlife or a midlife crisis. Like, and you start to kind of think, maybe this is all smoke and mirrors. Maybe like, maybe it's not what life is really about. And it is difficult. If you're in a company or an organization whose values don't gel with your own, you know, I think all that you can do is try to live as consistently in accord with your values as you can while accepting the limits of your environment. And the ancient Stoics knew that they said, like people had jobs, there were legionaries and you know, people that held down different jobs in the ancient society. Epictetus says, look, if there's a little bit of a smoke in the room, put up with it. If there's too much smoke, then like the door's always open for you to leave. You know, so if there's a bit of a clash with your values, stay in your job and try and work with it. Like if there's a big clash with your values, then maybe, you know, like virtue would consist in leaving the job and trying to, to find something else. Um, Interesting, yeah. It's well, yeah, like you mentioned, the Stoics, like reading Lives of the Stoics with uh, Ryan Holiday, like so many Stoics were like involved in politics and in the middle of conflict and power and greed and stuff, and they. Marcus Aurelius had a problem with this in the meditations. He complains about it a lot. He says he gets quite frustrated with court life. I mean, you think he's in charge, right? But he feels that he's compromised a lot of the time. Mm. Um, you know, it's difficult for him to occupy that position. So it's, it wasn't easy for him. He had a lot of moral conflicts, um, you know, and uh, he didn't want to be emperor in the beginning. Like, but he was persuaded that maybe he could do the job, like he'd be the best man for the job. And so he stepped up and he did it. And he tried to make the best of it that he could. But he reminds himself to be, one of the things he says that might be useful, he says, look, you're not going to build the ideal utopian society overnight. He says, you won't build Plato's Republic overnight. He says, but you need to be satisfied if it's, as long as you're moving in the right direction, even if it's only one small step at a time. And that's the most powerful man in the world, saying that one of the most powerful men in history, saying you've got to be satisfied sometimes if you're making small changes, as long as you're moving in the in the right direction. Yeah. Something from your book as well, you touched upon then, Marcus. He was, I think it's your book, where he talks about he would love to go on holiday to like the, the countryside or whatever. Then he realizes that's no holiday. You've got to find it in your own mind, basically. You've got to find peace of mind. That's right. Like, you know, he says there's nothing that I can get in the countryside, in the seaside, in the hills. You know, no peace of mind that I can find there that I can't find in the army camp, standing here on the front line in the blizzards, like in this hostile environment, like he didn't like the cold, like he had a bit of a he had a bit of a dodgy chest, like Marcus Aurelius, like he get he said he had to give these speeches. It's difficult giving a speech. You got to add 
problems giving speeches because the frigid air was kind of affecting my voice, he said. Like, uh, yeah, chest problems. Good old Marcus. Yeah, I like that, the, the realisation. I think a lot of people do that, don't they? They wait for that two-week holidays per year to live their life, and they're like, ah, if I have that holiday, I feel better. No, you won't. There's a song not... about that, like, living for the weekend. Yeah. Like, and, uh, yeah, some people kind of, like, they just do their 95, and they're just saving it all up for the weekend. But you've got to make the most of every moment in life, I think. Like, you know, you can't just be, like, storing it up for, like... Uh, few opportunities that you get to let your hair down like there needs to be more there needs to be value in everything that you do if possible like you've got to try and find like opportunities to do things that you value like from moment to moment i think in life yeah that's important you touch upon that on the four range the four arrangements the the fourth one is always do your best and even if you hate doing something just do your best and you find like joy in doing your best and stuff which is good but yeah that's good if a job's worth doing, it's worth doing well, Scott. Yeah, I think you My did that. used to tell me all the time. <laughs> I think you did that with your books, Fair Play, too. Fair Play. But there's a good one here on the next follow-on. Are you ready now for the next mm. question? Are you, are you sure? Ready. Okay. Yeah. I was born ready. <laughs> You're born ready for this exact question. I'd like to know how you differentiate between your own true values and values imposed on us what our, our what our values should be, if that makes sense. Let me say it again. I'd like to know how you yeah. differentiate between your own value, true values and values imposed on us. Bogus values, other people's values. Yeah. They're not good at all. Like, like the, those are none of our business in a way. Like we want our own values, our core values, our authentic values to come to the fore. And uh, I think partly that just kind of emerges organically by questioning your values and reflecting on them and defining them. But there are what I call perspective shifting exercises that you can do that help. Um, I'm going to talk about them in, in a minute, but actually one of them is, you know, you, you can just ask yourself, well, look, if other people weren't around, if I was in like a post-apocalyptic London, like in one of these movies, like I was the last man on earth, like... You know, would these values like still matter if other people weren't around to watch me? Like, mm. you know, or what, you know, what if nobody else cared? Like, would these values still be important to me? You've got to ask yourself different questions until you can hit on the right one, but just try and remove other people from the equation somehow or other using your imagination and say, what if they didn't know? What if they didn't care? What if they weren't around anymore? would I still value creativity or would I still value compassion? Or, you know, these things, or I'm only doing it for them. Like, like so uh, you can use these thought experiments. That helps a little bit. That's really good. Anyone, if you've got questions, anything about that, put them in. That's a great question, actually. What values, like even justice, right? How many people would actually want to still do justice if it didn't have the like, yeah, it's the right thing to do side to it? Because a lot of people yeah, would pat on the back. Yeah. Even if nobody's watching, like, will you still do the right thing? Like, would you do what's fair? There's in Plato's uh, Republic, he's got a thought experiment about that. It's the famous one. It's called the Ring of Gyges. And they, it's kind of like very, it's obviously kind of similar uh, or reminiscent to that thing in Lord of the Rings. Because um, the Ring of Gyges is a ring of invisibility. And Plato says, if nobody could see you, like, if you were invisible, would you still... Uh, act with uh, justice 
Like, would you still act fairly or would you just be going around stealing everything? Like, <laughs> you know, like if you could get away with it under cover of darkness, if you had a ring of invisibility, would your morality go out the window? Are you only doing it? Like, because you're frightened of the consequences or are you doing it because you actually believe in acting in a way that's honorable and virtuous and just? Tough question because then people will say, okay, of course I'm doing it because of the sake <laughs> of doing it, mate. Well, don't be stupid. And then boom. Which is its own reward. That's what Socrates yeah. says. Yeah, yeah. Same, some people say, no, you know, virtue signaling, the virtue, the value of honesty. Oh, yeah. Um, I guess virtue yeah. signaling is, this, is also connected this, to this idea of just kind of like doing it for other people. Look, the bottom line is, it's about when you look in the mirror and see yourself. Like, can you look yourself in the eye? Can you look yourself in the, in the mirror and actually feel some self-respect? You know, like, can you, you know, like have some sort of admiration or self-satisfaction, like from the way that you're living your life? That's when I think you know that you're on the right track. Like, you look in the mirror at the end of the day and you think, I did a good job today. Like, you know, regardless of what other people think. You know, even like in Kipling's If, you know, even if other people are losing their heads around you, if other people are condemning you, you know, you still look in the mirror and, and think, I don't care, like, I'm still proud of myself for what I did. I'll go to my grave, you know, like, with a sense of self-respect and dignity because I believe in what I did. You know, I think that's really the most important thing. Um, that's what gives life value, you know. Uh, it's very elusive, though, because we're easily sidetracked by trying to impress other people. That is the problem. That is the main problem. I'll tell you a good quote from Marcus Aurelius. Actually, Marcus Aurelius quotes something that another dude said, a guy called Antisthenes, who was a student of Socrates, said it uh, 600 years earlier. And uh, you see me doing mental arithmetic there. Sorry, you're a wizard. Mental arithmetic there. 600, about 600 years earlier, this guy. And So that's like a long time ago. Um, before Marcus, to him, this was like, a, like us looking back on medieval times. This is ancient history to Marcus Aurelius. So he said, Antisthenes said, "'Tis kingly to do good and yet be spoken of ill." And what mm. he means is like, if you can still do the right thing, even though everyone else is laughing at you, like and condemning you, then like you're like, that's really like the pinnacle. You're uh, like, uh, to the Stoics and the Cynics, kingliness, is internal, like it's a character trait. And so they thought Diogenes the Cynic and Antisthenes were kingly individuals, kingly men, because they conquered themselves. And they thought Nero and Alexander the Great and these guys were actually slavish men because they were consumed by greed and vanity. So it's a topsy-turvy world that we live in. Like Marcus Aurelius would look back and go, no, Diogenes, although he's like a beggar, has actually got the soul of a king. Like, whereas guys like Nero have the, uh, are the opposite, really. They're enslaved yeah. by their passions. You know, so things are sometimes the opposite of, of how they seem from the outside. But he said, "'Tis kingly to do good and yet be spoken of ill." And Marcus really has quoted that. It's obviously resonated with him. He thought, geez, I'm actually in this position of being an emperor. Can I still, like, in that position, do what I consider to be the right thing? And, yeah. you know, in a sense, he'd provoked a civil war which in a way is a good sign. Like he was doing stuff that rocked the boat. They poisoned uh, Socrates, Marcus Aurelius. They tried to like, depose him um, from being emperor by having instigating a civil war against him. And it was because he was doing a lot of things, things that they didn't like that he did, right? 
meritocracy. He started promoting people from humble origins. So he promoted a guy called Pertinax to be one of his lead generals, who was the son of a slave. And Pertinax went on to become Roman emperor. He succeeded Commodus, like, because Marcus Aurelius had promoted this guy. People didn't like that. Like, it was normally aristocrats that were generals. Like, he was rocking the boat through this kind of meritocratic regime. And also consistently in his legislation, Marcus Aurelius improved the rights of slaves. Like, it's a recurring theme in his, uh, the legislation that he passed. He made it, he didn't abolish slavery, but he made it progressively easier for slaves to earn their freedom. Like, so this was another important thing that rocked the boat as well. People didn't like that. Like, he recruited all the gladiators into the Roman army during a military crisis. Like, because there, were, there was a huge invasion, people didn't like that because it meant that the gladiators who were slaves potentially would earn their freedom because you earned your freedom by joining the legion at the end of it. Like, it's a very prestigious position to be a, a legionary, in fact. So like that rocked the boat. Like, there was a lot of unrest about that. They're like, you can't take our slaves away like, and give them jobs in the army and get paid and stuff. Like, that's outrageous. Right, so there are a lot of things that he did that rocked society in Rome. And he put, you could say he pushed it far enough. If he pushed it like a little bit further, maybe he would have woke up dead, he would have poisoned him in his sleep or something like that. Mm. People think the Roman emperor can do anything, but obviously he could only do so much. So a quarter of them got assassinated. Yeah, that's mad. That is mentally good. And like something like one third of them died in their beds or something. Most of them died in their, you know, part low outside of their home. It shows they were always like on the move or on the front line or whatever. There's a common theme of Donald, basically, right? Who societies created these values, right? And obviously the word society is very negative these days. People think it's a bad thing. There's obviously some good things society have done. And I think that just this is a good thing. Societies come together and go, you know what? We shouldn't really be taking any of this shit. So maybe there's something we should do as well. There's also stuff we've been conditioned. We're all conditioned in some way, shape or form. So aren't you conditioned with your values and not Mm -hmm. come up with them yourself? Yeah, like, I mean, this is obviously, in in ancient Greece, this is a common debate um, between uh, phusis and nomos. Like, so nomos is law or society and phusis is nature. Like, and so they, like they, the Greeks would debate, you know, whether something came from society, whether we're indoctrinated into it, or whether it was genuinely coming from, from nature, from, from our own nature. And so hmm. sometimes it's difficult to kind of like tease them apart. But the Stoics were what we call ethical naturalists. That's a technical term in philosophy, right? And what it means is that they actually believed that there was a natural law, that there are intrinsic values uh, in nature itself. And people think that's a crazy idea, Donald. Like, surely all values are just man-made. Like, we make, we pull them out of thin air, like, and we make them all up. Well, let me tell you, buddy, this is what Socrates said, right? <laughs> you know, we're never going to, no one's ever going to, uh, like, uh, conclusively settle this. But I'll tell you what Socrates said. Um, he said, look, right, humans are unique among animals because of their capacity for reason. Other animals can think. They can use tools and stuff like that, but nothing like to the, the extent that humans can. Like they can't write poetry like, and novels and plan to write a book and things like that. So humans have this tremendous capacity for reason. We're self-conscious. We use language like, and we solve problems and apply reason. 
And Socrates and the Stoics realized that if you're thinking at all, then arguably you're implicitly committed. If you're engaging in the process of doing thinking, having a wee conversation with yourself, like have a word with yourself, as they say in EastEnders, like that's just, so if somebody, I always say that's a lot about like cognitive therapy. So Peggy Mitchell was going, have a word with yourself, like go and have a little conversation with yourself, do a little bit of cognitive therapy with yourself in the mirror or whatever. So you, we, if you're thinking at all, if you're having a word with yourself, you want to arrive at the truth, right? Like, as soon as we start thinking, we're committed to the value of truth, arguably. Like, at least about the most important thing. Nobody, Socrates said, nobody really wants to be wrong about the most important things in life. We all value truth implicitly. And that's why we bother using reason at all. Like, we wouldn't bother thinking about things and trying to figure them out if we didn't care at all about the truth. So Socrates said, don't kid me. Like, you want to get to the truth just as much as I do. Like, that's what you use your noggin for. That's why you're going away and having a little word with yourself. That's why you think things through, right? And Socrates said, look, if you're committed to using reason and trying to get to the truth, then you might as well do it properly. Like, and if you're going to use reason to its full potential and live rationally, like, use reason consistently, if you were to really do that, like, then you would attain the virtue of wisdom. Someone that lives rationally, that consistently applies reason well, would have attained wisdom. And so the Stoics say, this is how implicitly we get to the idea that wisdom is a value, right? Because, you know, we can't shake it off. Like, we're all committed to valuing truth and wisdom deep down. You know, like, we, get, we, we go astray, we forget our values, like, we lose touch with them. But Socrates and the Stoics wanted to say that all human beings are implicitly committed to the value of truth and wisdom. And then they, that gives them a starting point. It gives them a foundation stone from which they can then build a, a system of uh, values um, by asking themselves what wisdom looks like, what it consists in. You might say, Donald, nobody can define what wisdom looks like. It's a common philosophers have debated this for centuries. Yeah, but Socrates said... I've got a simple way of approaching it. I'm going to tell you what wisdom isn't. Like, and he said, wisdom isn't riddled with contradictions. Like, so that's how he got his Socratic method. He said, uh, we can't, he said, I can't tell you exactly what wisdom is, but I can tell you what it's not. Like, wisdom isn't saying one thing and doing another. Like, wisdom isn't contradicting yourself left, right, and center. Like, if you're contradicting yourself within the space of a couple of sentences, you're wrong. Like, you know, you can't say two contradictory things and be right. Like, so wisdom at the very least consists in ironing out all the creases from your thinking, like becoming more consistent with yourself and making your actions more consistent with your words, removing hypocrisy and double standards from your thinking. And that's why, you know, I think most people can agree that there's something wrong with contradiction and hypocrisy. Like, because it goes so fundamentally against the intrinsic value that we place on truth and reason. So I'm old fashioned in that way. I'm not an ethical relativist or a postmodernist. I agree with the ancient Greeks. Like, you know, that we, we do have certain values that we're intrinsically committed to and that we can potentially build a system of ethics out of that. Yeah, that's good. And then really, you know, the values we look at, things that are... 
there's like there's obvious things that are good and bad, right? I know we're all conditioned, but there are obvious things that are good and bad. Like, don't hurt someone else. Obviously, that's a good thing. Like, there's oh, there are plenty of obvious ones that you can't really argue against. Do you mean like how like justice? You can't really argue that. Courage is a good one. You don't really want to like. Of course, it's good to be courageous. So, otherwise, we'll all be stuck in the house. Like, doing nothing. Not, not. I think you can refine each of those, Scott. And Socrates did. He was way ahead of you, buddy. He was two thousand, like two thousand four hundred years ahead of you. Like, you've got a lot of catching up to do, Scott. Like he's he's already said. Socrates already said. Like so, people said, um, for example, like causing other people pain would surely like be intrinsically a bad thing. But Socrates would say, well, then you may be able to think of exceptions to that. Like for example, what if you were trying to help someone? to build up their tolerance for pain and discomfort. Like, and they were approaching it as like a, a, a method of training for physical pain. Like it may actually be a way of uh, developing endurance, right? Mm. Um, and uh, another example would be courage. Uh, actually, uh, the Socrates talks about this in Plato's Phaedo and elsewhere. So he says, um, at the very least, what people call courage often might be a vice rather than a virtue. For example, Socrates says, look, um, a burglar uh, might do things that uh, are risky um, and dangerous. And some people would look at that and say that takes bravery. But Socrates would say, well, can you call that a virtue though? Is that really courage in the sense of a virtue? Like, and he also says sometimes people do courageous things because they're really um, like scared, yeah. You know, of something else. So his example would be like in battle, somebody might fight really courageously against the enemy because they're terrified of being captured and enslaved, right? Mm -hmm. And so he says sometimes uh, you'll find people doing things that appear virtuous because they're driven by another vice. And so he said, you shouldn't judge things by surface appearance. You've got to dig a little bit deeper sometimes to figure out whether something actually is a virtue or whether it's a vice concealed as a virtue. So Maybe. he didn't stop like at surface appearances. He wanted to kind of mm. on the surface more. But essentially, you're right. You know, most people agree. And there's research that shows modern psychologists do research on, on values. And for all that people talk about relativism, um, and uh, subjectivism and ethics. Generally, when you survey people, there's a surprising amount of consistency in their core ethical values. So yeah, most people believe that honesty is a value, like justice is a value, uh, courage is a value. Like there's a broad, there's a surprising amount of consensus about that. But then where it gets tricky, Scott, is when you start applying it to individual cases like, so people might disagree about whether a particular individual is honest or courageous. Mm. Like, so we disagree about how to apply. We agree about the abstract idea. We disagree about like, how to apply it in specific cases. Yeah, that makes sense. It also makes sense that like, so if something has been around for thousands of years and through the, through the times and tested in different people and is still here now, we can probably be sure that it's kind of a, Kind of decent, but there's I think a it's, that's a good sign. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, apart from war, maybe. <laughs> but uh, there's a good question here from Sarah. See if you can answer this. Donald, get ready now. Be prepared. So she's mentioned that 
Um, if you've noticed in sparsely populated areas of the world, human values can be tainted and distorted. Because, yeah, <laughs> because <laughs> they love a scrap in the coal mines. Because one isn't tested and right or wrong, good or bad, so they're not educated. So when they're exposed to what we have globally accepted as a societal norm, it's absolutely foreign to them. It's a really strange and interesting social experiment. Like, for example, cannibalism is accepted in remote parts of the world, but to the masses, it's frowned upon. Well, yeah, that's a, that's a tricky anthropological question. Um, gosh, well, there's a whole can of worms there. Uh, <laughs> because, like, because um, there's different forms of cannibalism for a start, right? So actually gastronomic cannibalism, where you're just eating people because you're hungry, like, um, uh, anthropologists have questioned whether there's any evidence of that. But what's more common is ritual cannibalism, where you eat your ancestors as a part of a funeral ceremony, for example, or people in, in history were told um, that people would eat the remains of their enemies when they defeated them in battle, uh, for example, like to gain their strength. Like, but the most common form of, of cannibalism, I think, is, is uh, in funeral rituals. Um, so like, would we condemn uh, cannibal? I think, see, the, the Stoics actually talked about this and people got annoyed with them because they said that the Stoics said, well, cannibalism is, they thought, um, in itself, morally indifferent. They thought it depends on the context in which you're, which you're doing it. So for example, if you were on a plane and it crashed in the wilderness, you know, we've all heard these stories about like uh, people having to eat, like turn cannibal and eat the remains of the survivors. And that's a moral conundrum. Like would you say that that's cannibalism is immoral or we say in a situation like that, if it's life or death. Like, and the same thing actually happened in ancient Greece during sieges. So often the city would be besieged and the enemy surrounding it would say, you guys are all going to starve. Like, you know, and that's how we're going to defeat you. Well, people would often turn cannibal under those circumstances, not just killing people and eat them, but like if somebody um, was killed in battle or like um, you know, someone else died of starvation, like they would eat the remains in order to survive. So should we say yeah. that that's against, that's against some religions, but would we say it's inherently wrong? I think people may actually disagree about that. Yeah, interesting. There is definitely cannibalism in a lot of like, I'm sure I read even in the, in the Napoleonic Wars and stuff during the Russian invasion where they were all just trapped and dying. They were eating rats and horses. And I'm sure it says, it mentioned cannibalism. I'm sure it said. But I don't know. Yeah. Once you go extreme, you'll do whatever to survive, won't you? I mean, what's the strangest thing you've ever eaten, Scott? I, have to, uh, I don't know. The Animal? Octopuses in my Disgusting. You had haggis? No, nah, I don't think I have actually. Nice. Right. No, it's made from sheep's lungs. That's, that's horrible. Yeah, I wouldn't eat that. Like, but they've got stranger things than that in Greece. Like, they, um, I wouldn't eat an octopus. I don't eat anything that's more intelligent than I am. <laughs> like, that's octopuses awesome. can use tools and stuff. Yeah, they're really, yeah, they're really, uh, they can fit through the smallest gap as well. They're yeah. really real pests. Imagine they were in the, on land. No way. They take over. That's actually one of my fears. Is like an octopus, like lands on my face, you know. That's a, that's a phobia. When the octopuses shall rule the earth. <laughs> Hopefully, when I'm gone. Our octopus overlords. Right. Octopus's values would be what? An octopus's values. Well, I don't know. Like, see, that's our trick. The philosopher Wittgenstein once said, "If a lion could speak," Wittgenstein said, "we wouldn't be able to understand it." 
And what he meant by that is that a lion's values and its worldview would be so different from ours. Like we, we really struggled to understand what it was talking about. Like, you know, we'd be like, why does it keep, you could see this lie is going on and on about like, you know, like smelling other lion's poo and stuff. I don't understand why he's so obsessed with that. Like, so Wittgenstein would say, well, like the lion's way of looking at the world would be so um, embedded in its nature and its instincts and stuff. It would just seem like it was to us like it was talking crazy you know, even if it could speak English. So I don't think, well, you know, it'd be hard to know what an octopus's values were. There's a famous paper, I think it's by Thomas Nagel, a philosophy paper called, um, it's something like, you know, can, uh, is it possible to know, can we know what it's like to be a bat? Because bats have a sonar or whatever. And it's saying, what are the limits of human imagination and empathy? Could, you know, I could put myself in your shoes to some extent, but could you put yourself in the shoes of a bat? And imagine what it would be like to be almost blind and navigate by sonar. That'd be terrible, wouldn't it? Be hard, like, get, like, you sort of imagine it a little bit, but like, be difficult to tell. No way. Be hard to, but rhinoceroses can hardly see, but they've got huge nasal cavities. And so they, they're really good at detecting smells, but smells linger for a long time. So mm -hmm. rhinoceros lives in a world where it's still kind of perceiving animals and things that were there hours ago like it sees uh, perceives the world in, in terms of like trails like where things like used to be like mm. you know whereas uh, our visual sense is, is much faster and more rapid like could you imagine where we could talk about it so if you can talk about it you can kind of imagine it in a way but it's, it becomes harder and harder to put yourself in uh, the shoes of another creature, the more and more alien it is. So I don't know, the answer to, to answer your question, Scott, I'm not really sure what the values of an octopus would be. Socrates would have known, okay, Socrates <laughs> would have known. He would have had an answer to that one. They did love their octopuses, like they had octopuses on the shields of some of the Greek uh, phalanxes. I think it might have been the, maybe the Corinthians had an octopus on their shield, possibly. Hmm. Do you know the danger of, I think it was the skeptics. I remember reading some book on knowledge, like what is knowledge? And I spun out and I was like, I can't keep reading this book about knowledge because what is knowledge? They were talking about the skeptics would just be like, yeah, but how do you know that's true? But how do you know that? And it's like, oh, mate, honestly, we could go on forever. Do you know what I mean? And well, it's like philosophy for you. But the traditional definition of knowledge is justified true belief. Boom, boom, boom. Justified, like, true, justified belief. true belief. So if you have a belief that's true, yeah. that might just be luck, right? There's our knowledge. So if I say, like, you know, how many marbles am I holding my, in my hand and you go three and I've got three, is that knowledge? Is that a lucky guess? It's a true belief. So Plato said uh, knowledge is true belief, but it has to be justified. You have to have a reason for believing that I've got three uh, and okay. for it to be correct, and then we would call that knowledge. If is this knowledge you tell me something mm -hmm. i pass it on to someone else they it's right because you said it to me but i don't actually know because i just trust yeah. what you say i don't think that's knowledge don't is it knowledge i think it's a it's a it's a weak form of knowledge i think because we've got a, we've got some justification it depends whether they trust you or not if they think scott told me and he's never lied to me before then that would be a type of justification but it's a pretty weak form of justification some hmm. knowledge is more um, justified than others. Well, yeah. The question, there are degrees of knowledge, maybe. 
Like, you that's right down there, pretty low uh, level. I'm not casting any aspersions on your trustworthiness, Scott, in saying that. But obviously, if they'd seen it with their own eyes, like, that would be a higher level of knowledge. Yeah, it's true. It's an interesting one, the knowledge debate. Because when you think about it, if we only base knowledge on everything we knew, we'd have to know, like, if I were to speak about electricity now, I'd have to, like, I bet you half the people here don't know how, you know, electricity and all this currents and stuff work in physics and the circuit system and all that stuff, do you know what I mean? So, what you're saying is right, that most of our knowledge is acquired from, like, other people yeah. and uh, books that we read, you know, rather than based on experience. And it's a strange thing. It's one of the differences from ancient society is that, you know, in, in the ancient world or in pre-literate society, a lot of people's knowledge comes from their own trial and error learning, you know. So we kind of think that we know more, but it's all secondhand knowledge that we've acquired from other people. Whereas, you know, one of the reasons that we were interested in ancient philosophers, like, is that more of their knowledge is acquired through their own reasoning and thinking. They put more effort and hard work into acquiring their wisdom, whereas we're just repeating stuff that other people have told us. Yeah, it's interesting. Is there, have you you've have you come across a guy called Richard Feynman, the, the famous physicist? Yeah, yeah, he's got some good stuff on like knowledge and beliefs and systems. The question you know on belief, um, how do you know a belief is true? How do you really know it is justified? Um, how do you know whether we, it depends what type of belief it is? So that you know, uh, philosophers would say there's different types of justification for different types of belief. Um, so I, yeah, I might believe that one plus one is two. So there would be, you know, there are mathematical proofs that we would use to justify that. Um, I might believe that uh, it's going to rain tomorrow. Like it's different sort of evidence, right? meteorological evidence that like, we might use to justify that. So there's different types of justification for different types of belief. It might be a different type of justification if you believe in aesthetic truths or moral truths or what would be an accurate interpretation of a work of art, for example. Why, you know, there might be a, a different justification for arriving at conclusions about things like that. So there are many, many different types of knowledge. Why, and therefore, lots of different types of justification, or at least that's how we use the word knowledge in our society. But of course, it's, you know, there is always this question, do we ever really know anything? And philosophers have yeah. kind of wrestled, like gone back and forth. Um, between the kind of like stricter criteria for knowledge and there have been skeptics throughout history that question whether we can know anything and then a looser definition of knowledge that says well we take it for granted in daily life that we know some things and don't know others and know things with varying degrees of certainty yeah so it depends whether we're using the word like in a like strictly or loosely perhaps yeah. And what's your take? So if someone's value is now moderation in terms of eating, my value is moderation and my value is honesty with myself. I'm not going to lie to myself, Donald. I'm not going to lie in my tracking sheet about what I'm eating. Uh -huh. what's, this, what's the criteria for, like, are we expected to be perfect with that? Can we not go do it for a day? Like, what's the, what are we going to do? How are we, are we going to write that down and remember it every day? Like, what are we doing? The value of moderation. Yeah. I think um, the thing about moderation really is, I think it's very closely tied to self-observation and self-knowledge. Like, so, oh, I just noticed it's snowing again outside. Like, see the window behind me, like, cool. Um, I think, like, it, it's a vague term, right? 
moderation. It's pretty. It's a pretty loose term, and so I think uh, it's really about judging what's appropriate. Right? And sometimes it might be appropriate uh, to do lots of exercise, and sometimes it might be appropriate to rest, like especially if, if you've got an injury or something like that. Let's say it might be a good idea, like to have a few days off. Like, so moderation takes different forms depending on your circumstances, what your needs are at the time. And it requires self-knowledge, self-observation and sound judgment to determine on a case-by-case -case basis what's actually going to be healthy and appropriate. What if I think is appropriate every time based on my needs? I need to eat this Domino's pizza with all the cookies because I'm ter terrible. I feel terrible, Donald. That doesn't sound like moderation, Scott. Yeah, but... but what if it's moderating my emotions? Uh -huh. Well, let's see. Um, so you're using your you're using it to comfort eat. Yes. Um, well, the problem in psychotherapy terms, like using stuff to manage emotions, unpleasant emotions like comfort eating, it, it's kind of a fool's errand in a way because it usually doesn't really resolve the emotions in the longer term. Like it's just a way of covering them up and it, it, it often tends to make the problems worse. So not only are you going to probably be, you know, gaining weight or whatever, or like affecting your health negatively, and then you're going to feel sad about that. Like mm. it's going to maybe damage your self-esteem, your self-image or whatever. But like dealing with unpleasant emotions by distracting yourself from them, which is basically what comfort eating is, like, you know, really just doesn't address the underlying issue it's like if you had toothache like and you dealt with it by distracting yourself from it so or, or masking it by taking painkillers or watching tv so you weren't thinking about it as much rather than just going to the dentist and getting the tooth pulled i like that right? i like it it's a good one it's a good one i think a lot of people yeah, exactly because people because it's eating is such a big thing in our lives we often have very cloudy judgment about eating and we don't actually see it objectively like the dentist, like that. Eating. It's like, I'm fasting today. Like, you know, I like to fast. I love to fast. Like, it took me a long time to discover it. And then I felt so much healthier once I started getting into it. And I do this one meal a day thing as well. Nice. Like, I'm not like a big fitness guy, but I do that. And Lalia makes me do it as well. Like, she told me, we're fasting every Monday, Donald, so I have to do it as well now. Like, but this is what I call Scott. Do you know I've got a name for this? I've got I've made up this new brand name. I'm going to trademark it. But it's called Live Like Lalia. Live. <laughs> but I think Live Like Lalia involves having a sneaky glass of wine every so often. Hey, that's good. Get right. it in. Is that all right? Is that allowed? That's like, allowed. Yeah. We only do it in our house, though. Moderation. Like, we have Live Like Lalia in our, in our apartment. That's but, um, what was I saying? Like, oh yeah, like Socrates says a lot about eating. And um, like, I love one of his famous slogans was that we should um, uh, eat to live, not live to eat. Eat to live. Eat to live, not live to eat. So we, yeah. we shouldn't make like stuffing our faces like the goal of life. That's not what life is about. But we should eat like what's healthy for us. Like yeah. whatever, like the things that we should eat should be things that contribute to our health and well-being, like not just viewing, you know, uh, life as an opportunity to to indulge in eating junk food and things like that. We should uh, uh, eat to live, not live to eat. 
Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Then people would say, but food is, I love food so much that it's part of my culture and family and stuff. And it's like, I've got a lot of doubts about that. You know, I'm going to say some controversial things here, Scott. I think a lot of the things that people say, I'm going to dig deep here. We'll do a deep dive here. I'm going to say something that many people might actually disagree with. I'm usually, usually, like, people agree with a lot of things they say, but I, this one's a controversial one. I don't actually believe that people enjoy many of the things that they say they enjoy as much as they claim that they do. So people say, oh, I really like, I love chocolate or whatever. And I think, do you though? Like, because as a therapist, when I, as a clinician, when I say to people, I want you to actually monitor the amount of pleasure that you get from chocolate or whatever and rate it from zero to 10 at the time that you're eating it, it's invariably much lower than they think it's going to be. Like, so I think a lot of it is all in their head. Like it's kind of anticipation and stuff. Like, are you actually getting that much pleasure from eating chocolate or from smoking a cigarette? I used to do smoking cessation and smokers would say, well, I really enjoy having a cigarette. So I'd get them to rate their satisfaction from it. And it was always far lower than they thought it was going to be. Like when I got them to think about it, they thought, actually, I'm not really enjoying it that much. Why would it? It's just a mouthful of smoke. Like, mm. you know, what's so enjoyable about that? Like, so, so there's a lot of illusion. We deceive ourselves into thinking that yes. we enjoy things more than we actually do enjoy them. I'd agree with that. And also people get all carried away about fancy expensive foods and stuff like that. I think there's just as they much like pleasure it. to be had in simple food, like eating an apple, you know, or drinking a glass yeah. of milk or whatever, like, you, you know, um, we overcomplicate. Socrates thought we design foods that are meant to, even Socrates, 2000, 400 odd years ago, Socrates said Greek society is being ruined by people concocting overly complicated fancy foods and they're doing it in order to stimulate their appetites so that they eat more than they would normally, right? And Socrates said if you eat simple food, like normally just eat like a bit of steak, eat an apple or whatever, like you're not constantly kind of provoking your appetite, stimulating it. But if you're looking at all these amazing, you know, you go past the cake shop and it's got all these things that look beautiful and amazing, it's a con. Like, in a way, like, it's tantalizing. It's duping you into eating stuff that you're not really even hungry for. Yeah. Your eyes are bigger than your stomach kind of thing. Like, we've created this food culture. Like, we were duping ourselves, like, into eating more than we really need to. And eating stuff that we don't actually enjoy that much and eating stuff that's going to make our teeth fall out, Scott. We don't want that. We don't want to uh, look after. That's the best bit of advice. I asked my auntie when I was a wee boy, you know, before I left Scotland, I said, auntie, what's the best piece of advice you could give me for the rest of my life? And she said, Donald, look after your teeth. (laughs) Good, good advice. I think, imagine losing your teeth. It's not good, like, it's not good. They don't come back. There's no no turning the clock back on that one, Scott. They don't don't grow back. Soup for life, I don't know. I'm on the soups. Yeah. Not, not good. What I think, I think with eating out, right? It's not so much the food; it's so much the the service you get. You made it feel special. You tell your friends you're going exactly. to some blank place. It's the social aspect. You get a dress up. You get to take a photo for Instagram. You get to say you've been there. You get a. It's just like it's not even about the food. Yeah, it's all smoking mirrors, like most things in life. It's a big con. Like, and then you go out and pay loads of money, you know, to eat something that you could make yourself at home for a fraction of the price and probably do a better job of, like, you know, because it's 
all in the artifice of it. You're paying for the experience. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, but you know, like so we Socrates saw this, like two and a half that he says we're you're duping yourself into drinking when you're not thirsty and eating when you're not hungry. Like by the a lot of the fancy ways that you're preparing food and like you know stimulating your appetite and stuff. So you've got to be careful about that. Like he was smart enough to see that even back then and warn people back in ancient Greece, like that uh, you need to be careful. Like you know you should be eating when you're hungry and drinking when you're thirsty. Like you know, get, nourishing your body, giving it the things that it actually needs, not tricking your appetite. Like which is what we're often doing. You know, like these restaurants you're talking about and stuff. It's all designed like to trick us. Like you know, to deceive our appetite. Like into eating stuff like it's maybe not you know like nutritious, not good for us, or maybe eating more than we like we, we would otherwise. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, bang on. I mean, we need some Socrates. Socrates should have done a fitness plan back in the day, I reckon. He should have done some nutrition plan. I think he would have made a lot of money. He did talk he, a lot about it. Like he gave some people some really good uh, good advice about health and fitness. He said also he said something very profound. He said hunger is the greatest relish. Like, so he said the paradox about people that stuff their faces and eat too much food and stuff like that is he goes, they want to get as much pleasure as they can from food, but actually they're enjoying their food far less than someone that moderates their appetite. Mm. Socrates said, I actually enjoy my food much more than any of you guys. Like, it's because I eat it in moderation. But you guys yeah. that are like eating loads of expensive food and stuff in your face, you take no pleasure from food anymore because you've ruined your appetites. Like your old mum used to say, you know, you spoiled your appetite by like eating too much and too frequently and at the wrong times and like eating too, too much fancy food and stuff like that. Can't enjoy the simple things in life anymore. As Socrates said, hunger is the greatest relish. Like it enhances your enjoyment of food. You know, Scott, the best meal I ever had. And I was, uh, when I was a boy, I used to go walking in the hills, like I went in the Caledonian forest and I went, I didn't bring enough food with me. Like, so I was carrying my backpack and stuff. I was out for like, I don't know, a week or so. And after like three or four days, I ran out of food. And uh, like, I went for like maybe a day or like a day and a half or something, walking all day. And then I met a guy that was hill walking and he gave me a biscuit and a boiled egg. Like, I was starving. Like, it was the best meal I've ever had in my life. Was the boiled egg real? Yeah, the boiled eggs actually, try eat three boiled eggs in a row. Really? It's quite hard. Was it a nice? Was it was it melty in the middle or was it was it hard or? It was not. It wasn't even a good boiled egg. It was one of those ones that are like a lot of it. The the shell doesn't come away easy, and the yellow <laughs> bit had, had gone kind of all black around it, oxidized or whatever. But it's you normally it's normally the sort of boiled egg I would have turned up my nose at. You were in that moment. It was like it was probably the best boiled egg I'd ever had. It's true, isn't it? It's like but yeah, but how? But the th the problem we have with get letting ourselves go to that level with food these days is that it's so easy to overeat when we are in that mode of like oh I'm so hungry I need to Not eat something yeah because unprocessed foods are so high in calories it's just like you could eat two thousand calories today in like literally two minutes I think I mean I don't think fasting is for everybody that's one thing I'd say like you know I find it quite easy to do it like I guess well I've got a slow metabolism I don't get hungry that that quickly you know. So one day I figured out I could fast quite easily and I felt a lot better when I do it. But one of the things that I get from fasting is that often when people, again, when people think they're hungry, I, often it's not really hunger. Like, they're just bored. 
yeah like or they're agitated mm-hmm. or something you know it's not real hunger and i think that many problems in life are caused by people misinterpreting their own feelings or bodily sensations um yeah, you're right what would you say about so there's a good one here what would you say about food being so heavily tied into emotion and present in any every meaningful memory in our lives how do we see food as an objective or eating as an objective concept in that regard? Marcus Aurelius used to have this exercise for that. I mean, I don't know if this is everyone's cup of tea or not, but he would. Uh, he said when a banquet was in front of me, we'd go, it's just a dead pig, it's a dead bird, like it's just fermented grape juice or whatever. Like he would kind of like try and describe things and like in, in really just more down to earth objective language. So like the god, oh, this is the finest. Like oh, like that Marks and Spencer's advert. Do they still have this? This is like this isn't this isn't just yeah, any volavon. Yeah, yeah. This is the finest volavon made from <laughs> like this, like hand reared chicken. This chicken, this chicken was kissed on the beak every day, like <laughs> before like, before we made it into a chicken volavon. And like you know, it was reared on the best seed. Like and Marks really be like, no, it's a dead chicken. <sighs> it's a dead chicken with a bit of pastry. Like, so he would, um, but he's trying to not be negative about it, but just be like really objective. Yeah. Like, kind of like, you know, visualize things as realistically and objectively as he, as he can in order to get away from the, the, the values like, that accrue around them. It's like stoicism, it's about getting back to reality. You know, get back to like see, viewing things more realistically and more objectively, and then maybe we'd stop eating so much sushi and stuff, and like, you know, eat just eat an apple. When I was a boy, my mum would be like, "Here's an apple, eat that." What happened to what happened, Scott? Like, how did my, you end up eating all this weird stuff? I know my mother gave me sleep for dinner. She did go to bed. No food. <laughs> Wake up next day. Oh, dying. <laughs> well, yeah, it's good. I think, I, yeah, I think, I think we do tie too much emotion to food. I think we do overblow it a lot. And like, obviously, it's been a part of our life. We have to eat, but we don't have to keep attaching the same emotions to eat and moving forward, do we? We can say no. No, it's not. It shouldn't be. It's like it's a serious problem if it's becoming a form of self-medication or a coping strategy. We're doing that comfort eating thing. Like that's you know, like that's a a, a recipe for neurosis. Like, you know, it's a, it's a big mistake to, to begin using food in that way at, at all because it's easy, it becomes a habit, right? And I'm not, you know, aside from the fact that it leads to overeating and, and other bad habits, like the an even more fundamental problem is it prevents natural emotional processing from happening. It doesn't work. You know, stuffing your face with cream puffs or whatever it is, like eating Dorito, bag of Doritos, like, it's not really going to make your problems go away, you know? Like, it isn't going to actually resolve the underlying emotions. You have, to, you have to face your emotions and experience them sometimes in order for your brain to process them and for you to move beyond them. And so, we, you know, psychologically, we have to be careful about using any kind of method like that uh, as, a, as a way of uh, distracting ourselves from emotion. But then in addition to that, you've also got, obviously, problems of overeating and eating junk food and so on the impact it has on our physical health. Yeah. And what it's obviously like makes sense and valid point, but what would you say to people who say, listen, Donald, the emotions are so strong, mate. I can't control myself. Like 
how can we get can our emotional response be so strong that we is that being shown in research where you literally cannot stop the action of doing something you don't want to do? It, well, what we tend to find actually, like obviously, that you know, there's always exceptions, and some sometimes people do have incredibly strong uh, emotions that are, like, are difficult to control, although it's quite rare. Um, but you know, generally, what we tend to find in therapy, we, we for example, in a mod, there's a state of the art type of cognitive therapy called metacognitive therapy, right? It was oh. developed in England by a psychologist called Adrian Wells. It's a leading evidence-based, research-based form of psychotherapy. And one of the main things it does is get people to rate how uncontrollable they believe their worrying or rumination, like their anxiety or their, their depression is. <clears throat> and generally, what we tend to find is that people um, underestimate how much control they potentially have over certain aspects of their emotional life. So I, I'm phrasing this carefully because I think I mentioned to you before, people, when they talk about emotions, have this lump theory. Like, So we, we have this term that we use called folk psychology. And folk psychology is the way that you and I and everybody talks about the mind and emotions and stuff like that. So our society has kind of theories about emotions and stuff we, we take for granted. And we have a crude, simplistic idea of psychology that we all share in everyday life. And part of so folk psychology, um, this kind of naive default psychological view is that our emotions are just kind of like homogenous lumps, like anxiety is just this thing. Depression is just this thing. And in fact, anxiety is composed of lots of different ingredients. It's a cake that's baked from lots of ingredients. And when you understand that, it's very important because uh, it gives you more control. Like, because you think if, oh, my hand slipped, put in too much water, you've ruined the cake, right? You can ruin the cake of anxiety. You can turn it into something else by changing the ingredients. But you have to realize like, that it is made of lots of different ingredients. And some aspects of anxiety or depression or anger are voluntary and other aspects are involuntary. Like, and so the problem often is that people don't distinguish, like they don't sort them into two categories like, and realize there's bits of this that are voluntary, bits of it that are involuntary. And often people are struggling to control the involuntary parts and completely neglecting to take control over the voluntary parts. Makes sense. Makes sense. And I got a one point here for you first, and then we'll move on to your values slideshow extraordinaire. Came across a study the other day, last week actually, says about mindfulness, right? This is quite interesting. It says, um, out of the five mindfulness skills proved, proved effective during the first eight weeks of Bob people with burnout, only the skill of non-judging continued to counteract exhaustion. So... I'd imagine, like, how exha how exhausting is it to not always judge your thoughts? I'd need to know more about that study in order to comment on it. I haven't actually, I don't think I've seen it. Like, I'll send it to you. I'll, I'll, I'll have a look at it. Like, so, because um, there are probably other aspects of, uh, yeah. there may be other aspects of mindfulness that you could potentially dismantle um, and look at. So what about being uh, non-judgmental? Um, did you say non-judging non-judging right. our thoughts and our actions and stuff so I think it's tying in with some mm -hmm. mentioned earlier about values like 
if I want to be moderate, but tonight I'm not, and then I'm conflicting in my mind, I'm judging myself all the time, that's causing conflict and it's causing burnout in people. Basically, I mean, one of the things that really exhausts people is making strong value judgments. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, guilt and shame. Um, like people, like the clients that I see in psychotherapy, like, I, I mean, like maybe half of them, a lot of them will tell me they feel exhausted. Right. The ones that are depressed and have generalized anxiety, like, often say they feel exhausted all the time because they're like wrapped up in uh, upsetting emotions, they're worrying, they're ruminating. It takes a lot of time uh, to worry uh, and to morbidly ruminate. Like, it's amazing, like, you know, someone might spend a huge chunk of their life like, just going over like, unpleasant memories from the past or anxieties about the future. And it, it's tiring, it takes up a lot of your attention. Like, and so, you know, definitely, that, a lot of that has to do with the type of value judgments that we make. Um, like, I'd need to kind of like dissect that a little bit more. There's different types of value judgments. And, but the, the Stoics essentially want us to suspend strong value judgments about things that aren't directly under our control. And they think that's really you know, one of the keys to uh, developing peace of mind. Yeah, that makes sense. It makes sense, everyone. We'll I'll send it to you, then you can dissect it for next week. Great song. Someone, geez, you're giving me homework now, buddy. <laughs> I actually am, yeah. I just slept <laughs> home. <laughs> I just gave you homework. You gave me homework. Don, do you mind looking uh, at this? Mind like have a look at it. <laughs> See, I'm making you an involuntary action here for you now. Yeah. I feel. Have a look at it. I'll speed read it. Yeah, just have a little blip and just... I haven't read a research study for a while, like, but my excuse for that is that um, I'll admit that I'm not, I'm not as up to speed as I used to be on, on psychological research because I have to spend all my time reading ancient history now. Like, um, yeah. writing, um, I've, I've got, I'm, too, I'm becoming too much of a jack-of-all-trades. Like, you know, so like, I do my ancient history and I do my philosophy like and then uh and then i've got my psychology and stuff i need to kind of get i need to get back and do a bit of a catch up with research like see uh see what i've missed out on uh over the past year or so yeah well th there's a good there's a question here before you go into the slideshow actually uh -huh. um what are your views on jealousy and is that classed as a judgment or an emotional response to something um, like jealousy. I haven't worked with her. I used to work with jealousy. Like I'm kind of racking my brains a little bit. Um, it's very closely tied up with, I mean, well, first of all, jealousy can take a number of different forms. So like for some people, what some people call jealousy might be predominantly about anxiety. And for another person, there may be a lot of anger mixed in with it. So often it's kind of like actually a mixture of other more primitive uh, emotions. But Jealousy also is often tied up with suspicion and tends to involve a lot of kind of worry or rumination as well, in my experience, like of working with clients or have kind of pathological jealousy. So um, there has to be, usually, there's, a, there's this kind of trait in psychology that uh, researchers study called, in the, psychologists are very interested in different forms of um, psychological intolerance. So there's a thing called intolerance of uncertainty. 
So some people, if they say they're not really sure about something, like you're saying, you can what can you can you ever really know anything for certain? Like uh, most people can live with that. They can go, um, you know, I can never know for certain what my boyfriend's doing when I'm not watching him. Aye. But I'm cool with that. Like I trust him. Whereas other people, it drives them crazy. Like yeah. they don't know 100% for certain what's going on behind their backs. But you can never have 100% certainty. Like you've always got to accept a certain degree of uncertainty in life. And trying to get absolute certainty will usually drive you nuts. Like, and actually often, it, you know, like, you know, when you get paranoid and jealous and suspicious about other people, often ends up in putting pressure on people or spying on them or engaging in behaviors that backfire by ruining the relationship and making the other person more defensive. So jealousy can obviously potentially be a really toxic thing. Yeah. I assume when we say jealousy, yeah, we're, we're, we're talking about um, like a, it's a three-way relationship. I really have in mind when we're talking. People often confuse um, envy and, and jealousy. Um, but when we talk about jealousy, we're, we're really talking about um, distress that's caused by uh, a, a relationship that someone has with someone else, mm. like sort of three parties. Okay. And then envy is one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. Envy is more one-on-one. -on -one. It's about um, like your like, uh, distress that's caused by possessions that someone else has or uh, whereas jealousy is more about um, a, the relationships that other people have um, so you know, somebody somebody that you love uh, maybe is flirting with somebody else for example another person yeah. becomes involved like so yeah. yeah like that can really you know cause blood to boil and uh, yeah, I think we usually what happens I find with clients that I work with when they've got jealousy it's more the mind is absolutely racing about it they can't sleep at night like because they're going through every running through every scenario on the, on the mind so it's often that's bound up with this inability to just kind of tolerate a certain amount of uncertainty or trust and the overthinking actually we've got loads of really good therapy techniques these days for helping people overthinking um, and overthinking can take many different forms Jealousy is a, a typical example. Jealousies must be really close to anger. They must be like sister yeah. brothers and sisters. Because if you're jealous, it's definitely just like, it's like an anger to it, isn't it? It's like a... You tend to be thinking, people who are jealous tend to be kind of thinking through lots of worst case scenarios in their mind. Like, what if this is happening? What if that's happening? Like, you know, and kind of, uh, they also engage in threat monitoring. And that's when you kind of look for signs of danger. Like, so you're kind of like, you know, if somebody says something, it could be interpreted one or two ways. You always choose the worst way. It's like you're looking for it. It's, it's a form of confirmation bias in a way. Like yeah. you're, you're, you're looking for evidence that something's wrong. And if you look hard enough, you'll always find it. What are your thoughts on like, if someone's coming at you being like, I'm not trusting of you or whatever, Mm -hmm. Is that a reflection of their own actions? They're like mirror, mirroring it back. It can be projection. You know, sometimes it's the case. There's a lot of projection in, in life. This is one thing that I would agree with Carl Jung about. I don't agree with many things that Jung said. I like his books. They're interesting. But I think he was right to say that a lot of psychology can be viewed as projection. Actually, even Marcus Aurelius at one point, way ahead of the game, 
says that when you're angry with people, you know, often you need to look at yourself first and ask yourself whether you don't do the same things. So anger, you know, Marcus really straight up says a lot of anger is projection, like the things that annoy you most um, are often things that you're doing yourself. And it can be, you can get a lot of self-improvement in life just by using that simple tool of just asking yourself when you're upset with other people, is it maybe actually because you recognize something of yourself in them, you know, maybe at some level, are you really upset? You know, when you're, you're, you're jealous and you're not like trusting your partner, is it, you know, at some level, like, is it because you recognize that you, you yourself are untrustworthy? Like not always, but in, in some cases, no, yeah. a lot of uh, cases. you know, people that are jealous are also people that have cheated themselves in the past. And that's what drives them insane because they know they've done it. So they, they know, know they would do it. Like, yeah. so they know they don't trust anyone else. Like they've poisoned, like uh, poisoned the well. Like it's a slippery slope. You know, things have consequences. Sometimes that are more lasting and more profound than people realize. Like so, infidelity is one of them. Like you know, like often that can like have these repercussions. Can you ever really trust anyone again? Like you know, if you know if you know that you're you're prone to infidelity yourself. Yeah. Ooh. It's hard. But everybody, people just or people just do think of themselves. Or do you know what I mean? Even if they're doing a good deed, like most time, people are thinking of themselves first anyway. Mm-hmm. I mean, like yeah, if- are they though? Like, and most of the time, maybe like yeah, maybe that's human nature. But there are many instances in life where I think people behave altruistically. Um, you know, like a good example would be kids. Like if you're pretty, you know, when you're a parent and you've got kids, like, you know, often you'll put, put your kids ahead of yourself. Like, you know, uh, especially I have, I, maybe this is uh, uh, biased or whatever. I, don't, I feel like many mothers, you know, in particular, like feel like, you know, they would do anything for their kids and fathers as well. Um but like you know, a lot, a lot of people would would think you know they'd uh, risk their life to save their kids, like doing it for them, and that that's not self-centered. Like that's genuine altruism. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. I think that I think that it does exist in society. Yeah, yeah, it does definitely not case hundred percent. But yeah, that's good. Um, any other questions here before you crack on? I think so. I think interesting conversation, Donald. A lot of good questions have come in. So thanks everyone for this is just a warm-up. This is just a warm-up so we get blitzed away now. Um yeah, well at least I know I I doubt many people knew the difference between envy and jealousy. I actually didn't know. But oh they're different things, yeah, that's right. Yeah, they're slightly different emotions. I'm envious of your hat, for example. You may be envious of my hat, like, but I may be jealous of your girlfriend or something like that. Yeah. Well, I'm, I might be jealous of your relationship with Marcus Aurelius. I think you've got yeah, better. That's right. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not happy about it. <laughs> Trying to fight, Donald. We'll fight it out. That's what they did back in the day, isn't it? Trial yeah, by so the Pankratian or whatever. Get us in there. <laughs> Let's get us to fight. But yeah, no, it's good. What are we talking about then with values? What are we doing? Are we doing this? We'll, this, we'll this slide slides up. If I can, um, let's see. I think okay. I'm giving you access. Can you yeah. see that? I can see it, yeah. Beautiful. 
says, live like Louise, the four cardinal virtues and values in daily life. Ooh. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk a little bit about virtues and Stoic philosophy. And then we're going to talk about the idea of values in modern psychology. So what the Stoics meant by virtues are arity, and what we mean by values in psychology today are actually, you'll see, surprisingly similar. And then we're going to talk about putting it into practice. And I've got a lot of uh, suggestions about how to put these things into practice. Um, and a lot of... Uh, Penetrating questions. Uh, Treating us tonight, Donald. First of all, we've got a little quote from Marcus Aurelius. Actually, I've kind of butchered this. I've changed it a little bit just to kind of like, I've tweaked it a bit just to make it more relevant. But basically, this is the gist of what he says. He says that vanity involves tying your well-being to what other people think of you. Greed involves tying it to the external events that befall you. But wisdom means deriving your well-being from your own actions. And this really is quite profound, I think. Like, so this is the core of Stoicism in a way. It's kind of the shift in values whereby the Stoics say what we should really prize more than anything else is the quality of our, our own actions. Like, so the most important thing in life to the Stoics is to act honorably, to act wisely, to act with kindness and benevolence. And that's their number one priority in life, to be the sort of person that they could look in the mirror and admire, whether or not other people admire them, whether or not they achieve material success. Um, in terms of that, the Stoics think those things are of secondary value and they're not the be all and end all in life. Like, so this really, this little quote cuts to the core of Stoic philosophy. It's about making this shift in our perspective, like, so that we learn to place more importance on the quality of our own character and actions. That's why the Stoics say virtue is the only true good. So this is uh, the four cardinal virtues. For some reason, people love these cardinal virtues. I'll say a little bit about them. The term cardinal um, just means kind of like crucial. It comes from the Latin word for a hinge on a door, if I remember rightly. Like it's what, the, um, it's the, 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 like the linchpin like the key, um, the key thing. And it comes actually from the medieval Christian literature and virtues. So uh, these virtues go all the way back to Socrates. We don't know exactly where they originate. They might be um, older, like they might have preceded Socrates, um, but it was only later in medieval times that they became known as the four cardinal virtues. And then they find their way into Christian iconography. They're represented actually by the four evangelists in the New Testament by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and by four animals. It's called the Tetramorph, like this Christian image with the four animals in it. And uh, they're traditionally wisdom, uh, fortitude, temperance, and justice, or those can be translated into English in a number of ways. So the four cardinal virtues, um, the Stoics are particularly interested in these, and it's not meant to be a rigid system. They're meant to just be kind of like broad, flexible categories. And so there's lots of other virtues that kind of get classified under these. So it's just a little convenient model that people use to understand virtue ethics in the ancient world. But one thing I'd say about it, there is, there's a lot of modern research on values 
And these four cardinal virtues are feature prominently in modern uh, research on, on values. So they're still part of our society, like they're quite deeply ingrained and people tend to refer to them often. So this is how, this is the role that they play. This is why there are four virtues, right? There's a reason why they have these four. So I already mentioned wisdom, like the Stoics think that because we use reason, like we're implicitly committed to valuing the truth. Or Socrates puts it, nobody wants to think in order to be wrong about stuff. Like we think in order to get to the truth. Like, and if we're doing that properly and we're doing it consistently, then we would have attained wisdom. We'd be living rationally and wisely. So sometimes wisdom is called prudence, uh, sophia or phronesis in Greek. And the Stoics define it as knowing what's important, knowing the nature of the good. So knowing what's important in life and what isn't important. My wee girl asked me what wisdom was. I really believe that many people could benefit just from, this sounds like an odd thing to say, but you know, I, there's many things we could say about classical philosophy. I honestly think that just talking about what the word wisdom means would benefit a lot of people. Like just asking you people, what, what does it actually mean to live wisely? What, what does wisdom mean to you? What is wisdom? Like, that's a really good question actually to pose to small children. Like, you know, that's the sort of question I would ask my little girl, what do you think wisdom is? Like, what's, you know, what would it mean to, for someone to act wisely? in this situation, it's different from just being clever like, or intelligent. What's, what's wisdom? It's, it's ingrained in our culture. We have all these archetypes like Merlin and Socrates of these wise figures, Solomon. What does it really mean? We don't talk about it much today. It was all the ancient philosophers talked about. Like it's a concept that I think we need to tap into more and spend more time reflecting on. The word philosophy literally means the love of wisdom like the preoccupation of trying to understand wisdom. So my little girl asked me once what wisdom was, and I said, look, I, I think the best definition I can think of is that wisdom consists in understanding what things are actually most important in life. And also understanding that many of the things that other people think are important aren't actually that important. I think, that's, I think that's pretty much what wisdom consists in. And that happens to be very similar to what the Stoics said wisdom was, knowing what's important in life, knowing what's good and what's bad and what's indifferent. And justice, the other values follow from this. So justice, which is a bad translation, really, of a Greek word, dikaiosune, um, it used to sometimes be translated as righteousness. Really, it would be better translated as social virtue. It's virtue in our relationships with other people individually and collectively um, in society. And justice means acting with wisdom, acting with wisdom towards other people uh, individually and collectively, and also acting with fairness and, and kindness. These are the subordinate values. So justice or dikaiosune can really just be seen as applying wisdom to our relationships with other people and doing it without hypocrisy, doing it more consistently. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. So you're going about, Scott, you're living with wisdom, you're living with justice, you're doing okay, but there's a problem. Like fear and desire get in the way. Like we've got these internal barriers to action, as psychologists sometimes call them today. So our fears prevent us 
from acting consistently in accord with wisdom and justice. So if we're gonna be sages, like we're gonna, if we're gonna live like Socrates, like we're gonna have to conquer our fear. And for that, we're gonna need the virtue of courage or fortitude, Andrea, Andrea Sune in Greek. And uh, we're gonna have desires. We're gonna want to eat uh, a whole bag of cheesy watsits one day. Like, or you're gonna want to drink a couple of bottles of wine just because it tastes real good. Like, but then you're not really gonna be able to act consistently in accord with wisdom and justice if you've drank two bottles of wine and eaten a whole bag of cheesy watsits. Like, so in order to act consistently in accord with wisdom and justice, you're gonna need the virtue of moderation or temperance, a sophrosune in Greek. And actually, this one's also a hard one to translate because the Greek word almost could be translated as mindfulness. It means being kind of self-possessed, like it means being aware of yourself, like and in control of your behavior, acting in a way that's healthy and appropriate in accord with what wisdom uh, dictates. So mastering your desires, mastering your fears, in accord with wisdom so that you can live consistently with wisdom and justice. That's why we have those particular four virtues. When you really understand in the Greek in particular, what they come from, it's kind of a logical little system. And so that system of cardinal virtues has endured for two over 2,400 years, maybe more. Who are these lovely ladies, Scott? Whoa. They are stunning. Classy ladies. Mm. Like, these are the four virtues and, you know, in no particular order of importance. On, on the left there, I think pouring wine, I would think, but it looks like milk, is moderation. And then the lady that, with the black hair that's looking in the mirror, I'm pretty sure it must be wisdom. And then my favourite, like, the redhead, like, for so, who for some reason is standing next to some shrubbery, like is courage. And then the last one is like Lady Justice or whatever, like represents justice. So again, in art and iconography, this idea of the four cardinal virtues is, was very popular uh, throughout the ages in, in Renaissance art and Christian iconography. And this system of four cardinal virtues, actually I stole this slide from another slideshow that I did for the, the military. I've been doing a lot of stuff for the military recently for some strange reason, because like I don't have any connection at all with the military. But like uh, they like stoicism. So, and they like this idea of having a code of honor. So you can make the four cardinal virtues into a little stoic code of honor. So the, a stoic like Marcus Aurelius, he's dedicating himself to living consistently in accord with these virtues that he's figured out rationally. Like he's mapped out like a whole plan of life for himself and he knows what he admires in other people. He admires people that are wise. He admires people that are just. He admires people for their self-control. Like he admires people who are courageous. And he wants to be able to look in the mirror and see that in himself, right? And that becomes his priority in life. So a stoic code of honor would be to love the truth and seek to cultivate wisdom, to conduct yourself with justice, fairness, and kindness towards your fellow men and women, to have the courage to conquer your own fears, even the dread of death itself, and to exercise self-discipline or moderation by learning to moderate your desires appropriately and not eat all the sushi. Like maybe have an apple occasionally or whatever. Um, so I'll tell you a little story. I think it's time for a story. 
there was a Socrates. We're told this, uh, there's a guy who watched this conversation happen, Xenophon, who was an Athenian general, was friends with Socrates. And he says, one day he saw this conversation. Um, and Socrates was talking to one of his best friends, possibly his best friend, actually, Crito, was Socrates' childhood friend. And he was like a millionaire. Like, so Socrates was quite poor, but he had rich friends and patrons. One of them was his childhood friend, Crito. The legend goes, actually, that Socrates was originally a stonemason and a sculptor. And we're told that Crito removed him uh, from his workshop and set him on his career as a philosopher. So he probably said, listen, I'll support you financially, like, and you can I'll become your patron and you can just go off and study philosophy because I think you're such a talented individual. You don't have to work um, like in the stonemason's workshop anymore. He, he seems to have said to Socrates. So Socrates met Crito's son one day, uh, uh, Critobulus, and this kid was um, just uh, an adolescent. He's entering, you became an adult in Greek society when you reached about 15. And so he was entering adult life and he wanted to meet powerful and influential people. Socrates, a man of paradox, although he was poor and he, he hung out with some of the worst off people in society, poor people, slave people, um, immigrants, uh, prostitutes, um, he was also friend with some of the movers and shakers in Athenian society, the generals, the statesmen, some of the wealthiest and most powerful people were also his friends. So he moved between all strata of society. He's a very mysterious character, Socrates. And so Critopolis said, could you introduce me to some good friends? Could you do what the kids today call networking? Like, Socrates, can you help me? Uh, we're networking, like, to, to meet people. And Socrates said, yeah, sure. Like, um, what do you think of the, the best sort of friends to meet then? Like, and Crito, uh, Critopolis has got this list, right? It's like uh, people have a checklist. It's got, you know, people on dating sites in Scotland, they've got like, a checklist. Yeah, I've seen them. Got to be tall, dark, and handsome, like, and into sports. Like, six foot, six foot three. Yeah, whatever, all that kind of stuff. Right, so he's kind of got this mental checklist of the ideal friend that he wants to meet. So it'd be somebody that would come and visit you when you're sick. They'd bring some some Lucozade and some grapes or something when you're in hospital. You know, they send you a birthday card every year. You know, like they, they'd lend you money if you're in uh, you're broke and stuff like that. And, and you know, to his credit, if I remember rightly, he says also if you were kind of going off the rails a little bit, they'd maybe take you aside, like and have a word with you and kind of put you back on the right track, kind of thing. Like that's what a good friend would really be like. So it, he says, like, often in the Socratic dialogues, Socrates begins by asking a kind of rhetorical no-brainer question. So he says, what would an ideal friend look like? And Critopolis is like, well, it's kind of obvious, right? Someone that does all these kind of things for you. That's what we want in a, an ideal friend. Um, but then usually Socrates flips everything around if you're patient and you get halfway through the dialogue. It takes him a while to get there, like me. But eventually, you know, he'll ask a question that's a lot trickier. So he says to Critobulus, that's very interesting. How many of these qualities do you possess yourself? And uh, Critobulus is stunned. He's gobsmacked. Because he doesn't really know the answer to that question. And he's like, uh, I, I, not many of them. Like, and so Socrates gives him a wee lecture. Like, and he says, so buddy, do you think maybe you've done this the wrong way around? You've got it all back to front. Like you came to me asking me 
how I could introduce you to the best people in society, people that make the best friends. And actually, if you don't have any of these qualities and I introduce you to people, I'd have to portray you as if you did. And then I'd be lying. And eventually they'd figure out that out. They'd get annoyed with you. They'd get annoyed with me. They'd think that I wasn't really good uh, as a matchmaker anymore. Like uh, Socrates thought he was really good at introducing people and networking and stuff. He thought they would, they would lose faith in me in that, in that respect. And he said, but you know, if you'd done the whole thing the other way around and you came to me and said, Socrates, how do I become a good friend? He said, uh, we could have worked on that. And he says, the other part would have followed naturally. Because if you'd even shown the desire to become a good friend, and even more so if you'd worked on it and progressed in that direction, people, myself included, would be falling over themselves to introduce you to other good people in Athenian society. That bit would follow automatically. And Socrates' point is that this is one of his main recurring themes. Um, I saw this in a wee poster. I've seen this on mugs and fridge magnets in Athens, that Socrates said that you should be in reality as you wish to appear. And this is often his argument. And he's saying this to Critobulus. Like, you want to appear to other people to be a good friend, like, you're actually, you'd be better off figuring out how to genuinely become a good friend in actuality, how to cultivate the virtues, the qualities that you would admire in another people, uh, in another person. So like, there's always this kind of flip around, like, like we're putting too much emphasis on the external, like, and the Greek philosophers very often want us to turn it around and start working more on ourselves. And incidentally, I mentioned that Socrates was a stonemason. You know, some people believe that the reason that he stopped being a stonemason was he wanted to make the perfect sculpture of a god or a goddess to exemplify wisdom, like to embody courage, and he could never get it right. He wasn't satisfied with his work. And he went around and he spoke to the other sculptors like, and other influential people in society. And he said, can you tell me how to make a perfect sculpture of courage or to exemplify justice or compassion? And he figured out that nobody could really tell him how to portray these things in a work of art because they didn't really understand what justice was. They didn't really understand what courage was. And Socrates thought, how the hell can you make a statue of a God that embodies pure courage? Like if you can't even tell me what courage is. And so he put down his tools that day and he said, I'm gonna give up sculpting stone and I'm gonna start sculpting myself. He thought, if I really want to, if I really understood what courage was, like, then I would have courage. Like, then I would have achieved the kind of courage. If I really, really understood, if I really grasped justice, like, in order to really grasp it, I'd have to become just. And he thought, rather than trying to make an external representation of it, I need to turn my perspective around and my attention around and focus more on myself and start sculpting my own personality, my own character, to make myself wise, to make myself just, to make myself courageous, and to become an example to other people. That's why he stopped being a stonemason. So the Socratic method of questioning is all about virtue. Socrates went around asking people what is virtue um, and getting them to really reflect on it. And he usually begins by saying, can you define justice? Can you define wisdom? Like, and sometimes they'd struggle, but usually they'd give an example of something and then Socrates would grill them about it. The Socratic method of questioning 
in Greek is called the alenches, um, which is the word that the Greeks used in court for cross-examining a witness. So somebody stands up in court and they tell you what happened um, and the, the lawyer cross-examining them would say, well, you said you saw this happen, but earlier on you said something that contradicted that. So they point out contradictions or flaws in their testimony. Right? And so this is what Socrates calls his method. He'll say, what is justice? What is wisdom? And then he'll point out contradictions in our testimony regarding the virtues. And some people hated that and got annoyed with him. And other people thought it was profoundly liberating. They thought you've made me think much more deeply about the most important things in life. So often people's definitions are too broad or too narrow. I'll give you my favorite example. He's talking to a bunch of Athenian generals about courage. So it's very pertinent to them. They think they're experts on courage. Right? They instill courage in the men under their command. That's what they do. Socrates says, how would you define courage? Like, and the general that he's talking to uh, says, well, courage is standing your ground in the face of the enemy and the face of danger. Like in a phalanx formation, like uh, the soldiers, the infantrymen, the hoplites they're called in Greek, would uh, form a, an infantry line. And they'd say, like, standing your ground, even when the enemy are charging you and not running away from the battlefield, that's true courage. Like, and Socrates said, well, that's not a bad definition. I can see where you're coming from there. Just one thing. What about the cavalry? Like, they charge at the enemy, so they're not standing their ground. And he said, uh, also, the Spartans fight differently. Like, even though they're infantry, like, they run into the middle of the enemy in order to break up the formation. And nobody would say that they lacked courage. And he said, also, another thing. Your definition only applies to courage in battle. But surely people exhibit courage in times of peace as well. So what he's saying really is that their definition of courage is too narrow, like, and they need to revise it so that they can think of a definition of courage that would apply across these different situations. Like, so that's how Socrates will tend to question people. And then it proceeds into a very long and elaborate dialogue to try to really get to a, a more nuanced, a more insightful definition of justice or courage or whatever it is that's under examination. So we don't have to follow him in doing that, but uh, the point is that he thinks that we should examine and question our own values so that we clarify them and develop more insight into them. That's what he was all about. He said at his trial, when they were about to execute him, um, one of the things that Socrates said was, nobody's going to stop me from doing philosophy. You guys want to stop me doing philosophy. If you acquit me, I'm going to carry on doing it. I just want you to know that. So I'm not leaving this court on condition that I put a zipper on it. Like, I'm going to carry on doing philosophy regardless. You're going to have to arrest me again. Like, he said in court, outrageously. It's a huge controversy. And he said, because I believe in his famous words, that unexamined life is not worth living. Like, so he thought, what makes life worthwhile is clarifying our values. Right? It's almost a meta value. He thinks the most important thing in life is the ability to reflect on right, and fully understand our other values. And that's, that's the type of wisdom. And that's why philosophy means the love of wisdom. Like it's the fundamental value like, uh, that involves questioning and developing insight into other values like justice, courage, and self-discipline. So 
like skipping forward to closer to home, um, in 1979, this book was published and it was seminal, like the Cognitive Therapy of Depression by Aaron T. Beck et al. Like, and his colleagues. And it was the first ever evidence-based psychotherapy for clinical depression. And it's composed of several components, but a big part of it is a thing that we call activity scheduling, which is actually a behavior therapy. It's not cognitive at all, that bit of it. And also it's a ripoff because it was already described by a guy called Peter Lewinson earlier, who incidentally, these guys never mentioned once in their book. Like, so there was somebody who, whose idea they were borrowing, doesn't really get credited for it. Peter Lewinson is the guy's name. He was there first. So what Beck and his colleagues figured out that when you're treating clinical depression, you depressed people often abandon doing things that uh, give them pleasure. So if I'm with a sitting talking to a client with clinical depression, I'll say, let's get a list of all the things that you used to enjoy doing before you became depressed. I used to like going out for meals, used to like going out to the theater, used to like playing football, used to like going and visit my friends. Like how many of these things have you done in the last couple of weeks? Zero, right? And so I'll usually at that point say to a client, listen, if I made a list of all the things that I enjoy most in life and then I abandon doing all of them, I'd probably become depressed. Like, so I say, why are you not doing any of these things? And you know what they usually say? Because I feel too depressed to do them. That's what we call a vicious circle, right? So if you feel too depressed to do all the things that normally give you happiness, like you're kind of stuck in a rut, like your depression has become an excuse for doing things that are gonna make you even more depressed. A good example would be a lot of people say that they feel too depressed to go and do exercise, like go to the gym or do sport, like when actually that's one of the best things that you can do to alleviate depression, right? So it's a vicious circle, right? So in cognitive therapy and behavior therapy for depression, what we normally do is get clients to make a list of pleasurable activities or activities um, in the original model that give them a sense of achievement, like the, where they can succeed at something, a sense of mastery. And, uh, and then to plan, you have a little, a little form, like a diary. It's broken down hour by hour. I still use this, by the way, at work. I have a little form that I use when I want to work hard and I break my day into half hour slots. Like, so with clinical depression, we do this, like one hour slots usually, and like planning what you're actually gonna do so that you introduce like in small steps, more pleasurable activities or more activities that give a sense of achievement or mastery. At least that's what we did in 1979. We don't do it anymore, right? Because we realized that actually there's a more subtle way of approaching depression. It wasn't lacking a sense of external achievement or feelings of pleasure that made people depressed. It was more to do with lacking a sense of meaning and purpose, right? And that was kind of missing from the original conception. So it's been revised now. We, we have an approach now that's simpler and more robust. It's called behavioral activation. It's a state-of-the-art treatment for clinical depression. And so there's also a problem here, which is that depressed clients are often particularly preoccupied with achieving external goals, things that aren't entirely under your control, like passing an exam, earning a certain amount of money, getting a promotion, finding a new girlfriend or whatever, like achieving external goals. We call those extrinsic goals. And so the problem with external goals is they're in the future. Like you're going to achieve them eventually, but it keeps your mind in suspense. 
you're always forgetting about the here and now. You're always preoccupied with the future, what might be. And that leads to a constant sense of dissatisfaction with the present. So people think being driven and goal-focused is good, but often being goal-focused underneath it is a burning dissatisfaction with how, where you currently are in, in, in the here and now. Um, and it can take a long time to achieve, to pass the exam or earn the money or find the partner, like achieve these external results can sometimes take a while. Then when you achieve it, guess what? You're satisfied for a while, then you want something else. It's never ending. You start pursuing another external goal that's situated in the future. And so you get stuck in a rut of constantly like racing after something else, stretching after something else, and never really being able to experience any lasting sense of satisfaction. And then you're doomed yourself to generalized anxiety or clinical depression, like two closely uh, related problems, or at least to, you know, to, to something subclinical, something milder, like just, uh, you know, sadness or dissatisfaction in, in general. It's become pervasive in our society. Now, this guy, I should say, I've written a lot of articles about politics and all sorts of contentious subjects. The most controversial article I've ever written, Scott, is about John Lennon. Like, because uh, he's a controversial figure. It's like when that woman that played Wonder Woman, Gal Gadot, or Gal Gadot, did that thing. You know when they sang Imagine, the celebrities, and everybody went crazy about it? Like, I wrote an article about John Lennon's Imagine, because the lyrics are actually very similar to Stoic philosophy. But it's uh, people, like, so we'll set aside John Lennon. It doesn't matter who said this, right? I know that many people think John Lennon was like, uh, a, a dislikable character in certain aspects of his life. But he said something very interesting. He said, life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. And that's the same idea that we can get too preoccupied with plans for the future, external or extrinsic goals, and then life kind of passes us by. We're not really dwelling in the here and now if we become too goal-focused. Life's what happens to you where you're busy making other plans. It's passing you by. In other words, if you're not careful, you become too future-focused. Now, values in this sense are defined as, we sometimes call them intrinsic, like they have to do with inner fulfillment rather than external mastery or sources of pleasure. Intrinsic goals, we sometimes call values, like the qualities of our character, qualities of our own action, like, and they're satisfied as soon as you begin to act. So an example of an extrinsic goal would be passing an exam. An example of an intrinsic goal would be having self-discipline in your studies. Now, if you think what you really value is being a conscientious student, like that value could be satisfied at least to some extent immediately, like as soon as you decide to get to work on it. As soon as I start acting like a conscientious student, I'm already getting some, I can look at myself and go, yeah, I'm doing it. Like I'm trying, I'm on the right path. And so you can potentially, it's grounded in your actions in the present moment, and you can potentially get some kind of gratification, gratification or satisfaction immediately if you're focused on the quality of your own character and actions rather than results that are projected into the future. You know, your character is here and now, your actions are here and now. You begin uh, fulfilling your values here and now as soon as you even make an effort 
to act with compassion, an effort to be creative, an effort to act with self-discipline. You're already beginning um, to act in a way that you can garner some self-respect or satisfaction from. And so sometimes people who are extremely busy, like chasing around after external goals in their own mind, when I, in my consulting room, when I sit and ask them, uh, I've seen many clients, with, particularly with generalized anxiety, tell me they're really, really busy, they're frantic. And I get them to identify their values. And then I say, how much time yesterday did you spend in like minutes uh, doing stuff that was in accord with your core values? Do you know the most common answer to that question, Scott? No. Zero minutes. Like, zero, shocking. absolutely zero. Zero. Shit. Honestly, like most common answer, like so people go, what I really value is creativity. Like I really, you know, that's, that's what I really want my life to be about. I go, how many minutes yesterday did you spend doing something creative? Zero. Like most common answer. Most what I really value is compassion. I feel that life is all about helping other people, showing kindness and compassion to others. How many minutes did you spend doing that yesterday? Zero, right? But I was busy doing nothing of value by your own standards, right? It's amazing. And it's a short, it's like an epiphany to people. It's a big deal. Like when they realize that the things that they most value in life, they've spent zero time actually. So they go, what have I been doing all day? Like stuff that they don't really intrinsically value, like. So this is, uh, I sneaked in a little plug for my graphic novel, but you know, it won't be available for like another year or two. So like, you know, I don't, you're not all gonna be rushing out and buying it, but I like the artwork. Oh, like I, there's something, man, I wish I'd put this up in a slide. Scott, a guy sent me yesterday a photo of a tattoo that he had done. Did I tell you this? And he's a guy, yeah. I think he's a Czech guy in Brazil. He got uh, some of my illustrator's artwork from the comic that we're working on, this guy got it tattooed in his arm. He's <laughs> got, got I, I mean, like, uh, I, was, I was really excited to tell the illustrator about that. Like somebody actually went out and got his artwork tattooed on him. So here the Stoic teachers saying, the Stoics teach that learning con to control desire can benefit us more than obtaining all the things that we desire. And this is the Stoic paradox, like that they actually think that self-discipline is more important like than achieving external goods, like because they think, well, what's really important in life is to be able to look at yourself and have some self-respect, to, to have some degree of admiration, like to look to be able to look yourself in the mirror and think, ah, that's the kind of guy that I want to be or the kind of gal that I want to be. Like, so you can look up to other people and say, I really admire that guy for his self-discipline. But what the Stoics think, you know, what would it be like if you were more like the type of people that you admire? That's what the goal in life should be. Like, but we really lose sight of that a lot of time. We end up chasing after external goods, pleasure, wealth, reputation, and stuff like that, uh, and not tapping into this much deeper sense of fulfillment that we get from becoming a particular type of person, such as a self-disciplined person. So a way, one way of defining what we mean by these values, similar to the Stoic concept of virtues, there could be qualities of our character, like uh, having kindness, creativity, patience, or self-discipline. Those are qualities that we might attribute, character strengths we might call them. 
They could be qualities of our action, like living wisely, acting with compassion, behaving honorably. These are all things that you could begin doing right away, or at least making the effort to do right away. Or fulfilling a role well, like we can define them as being a good father, being a good son, husband, wife, colleague, being a good friend. So this is how people try and define intrinsic value, like character qualities, qualities of action, qualities of, in terms of how we fulfill a role. Um, I admire that guy because like, he's, he does a really good job as a father. Like he's, you know, he's a really good friend. I admire that guy because he really acts with compassion and he really behaves honorably, really exhibits creativity. This is what we mean by values as opposed to external goals. And so some of the benefits of value clarification, um, I'd ask you to think about it yourself. What difference do you think it would make if you were clearer about your core values? Because few people are, you know, when you begin really questioning them, if you were much clearer about where your values really lie, and in particular, the character traits that you really admire, how might that actually affect your daily routine? Like, you know, the way that you lead your life, it's a values that give us direction. It's like the compass with which we, we navigate. And yet most people that are really vague about it, how would your life be different if your core values were more coherent? Like if they were more consistent with one another? What would happen if your actions were more consistent with your authentic core values? Can you imagine if you were living more consistently with your genuine core values? What would that look like? I'm just gonna ask you a lot of difficult questions. Um, and I want you, you know, really, you know, to, to think about these questions. And, you know, right now, like to really think, what would you, what would tomorrow be like? What would tomorrow be like, Scott? Like if you just dropped everything and decided that I'm going to actually really focus on doing the things that are fundamentally most important to me. I'm going to focus tomorrow on becoming more like the people I admire. How might your life change direction? Or hmm. would it? I'm not sure it would actually. I'd probably do more writing. You'd be doing more writing, buddy. Yeah. I don't know what. Admire... I admire the fact that the written word can have such an impact. So maybe I would work on the written word a bit more. Or I wouldn't. Yeah, would, I'm. Yeah, it wouldn't change much. Which is which I'm grateful for, by the way, because and yeah, same with you. I would imagine you wouldn't change much now because you're doing what you love, and you. I'm lucky, like I get to do my hobby. Yeah. So I think about that a lot. Like, I, you know, I'm, I'm doing a lot of the things that I would, I get to talk to people about philosophy all day long. So, you know, I can't complain too much. Good. But, um, you know, the thing about your values is even if you're in a situation where you're not able to write, not able to talk to people about philosophy, usually there's two things. First of all, like if you made an effort to get closer. So say somebody had a real boring dead end job that they weren't finding, say they, they worked in a cardboard box factory, Scott, and they made cardboard boxes all day in a conveyor belt, right? Yeah. And they got paid peanuts for it. Like, and uh, they lived in a wee small town in Scotland, like just making cardboard boxes all day, right? And then what they really want to do is like to be an artist, like, but they're gonna have to save up money to go to art college or something like that. But fulfilling that value of being an artist might actually begin by just saving up the money. So even mm -hmm. though they might think, I'm not doing it right now, even though they might think, like, I'm, I'm doing this banal job, if they think, yeah, but I'm doing it, like, because I see it as intrinsically part 
of working towards becoming an artist. I'm exercising self-discipline in the service of creativity. Like I'm doing this like because it's part of what it requires what's required in order to live a creative life. That yeah. would allow them to see it as more meaningful. And then the other thing that they could do is inject more, even in a, a busy day. What I tend to find, you know, I said most people say they, they, they spend zero time doing uh, their core values, or people that are depressed or suffer from generalized anxiety do. Sometimes just doing, I, I might say to a client, what if you just spent five minutes writing some poetry or, like a, or just doing a little bit of creative writing? You know, even if you're sitting in the lavatory when you do it or something like that, you know, even if you just turn the TV off for five minutes, could you not even just inject five or 10 minutes a day when you're doing something that's really consistent with your values? So even if someone's in a dead end job and their circumstances are very, very limited, usually they can still find ways to inject a little bit more opportunity to act in accord with their values. And also values clarification for many people is the perfect place to start in terms of self-improvement. Like say you don't have phobias, you don't have anxiety, you don't have big emotional problems to work on. Work on values clarification. Like, you know, work on identifying what your real values are in life and then trying to act more consistently in accord with them. Like everybody can do that to some extent. So it's kind of a royal road to self-improvement. So let's get dive into putting it into practice. So start a little bit about thinking about clarifying your values. So the questions that we normally ask clients in therapy. So I want you all to really think about these questions and it starts off with a very direct one, which is what asking yourself, what ultimately is the most important thing to you in life? Just simply very direct. Some people respond best to a blunt question upfront. What is the most important thing to you in life ultimately? And really kind of like trying your best to put that into words. Scott, over to you, buddy. Tough one. I've asked the group as well to ch chime in. I think in. ultimately the most important thing in life to me. Um, hmm. I'd say I'm, I'm, I'm recently inspired by the whole Bruce Lee stuff about being your true authentic self and maybe that being your work. So maybe the most important thing in my life right now is for me to, to really clarify who I am and then just have that radiate in everything i do authenticity in your work yeah that's what i would say right now See, that makes sense as a character it's a sort of thing that you would admire in someone else it's the sort of thing that you begin you can begin doing immediately so even if you think it takes time to get there but you can still admire yourself for making the effort in that direction so you spent all day trying to figure out what your authentic self was and at the end of the day you still haven't got there you might still think yeah but still the fact that i tried like, it's, it's still worth it. It's time still well spent. Like, at least I was making an effort to do the thing that I consider to be the most important thing in life. Yeah, well, do you know what the people are saying here? And I think I, I'd like you to touch on this, is, is, is happiness. Because I, I wouldn't say that happiness is the most important thing to me because I know that you can't just have happiness 24-7. But what, what are we saying to happiness as one of them? Uh, I'm going to tell you some. I'm going to say something controversial about happiness. I knew you'd right. have something. I knew it. Right. So the word, like, see, in Greek philosophy, this is more obvious because the word they use for happiness is eudaimonia. Um, it's a famous word in philosophy because uh, it, it like, really, let me put it this way. 
if you ask people today what makes them happy and they just say it's eating chocolate and watching Netflix and drinking a, a, a glass of uh, Sauvignon Blanc or whatever, like, you know, that's a very superficial understanding of happiness. Really, that's what the Greek philosophers would call hedone or pleasure, like, rather than happiness. There's another type of happiness that comes from the sense that you're acting in accord with your core values, right? So the problem is that we, I think we confuse, again, we've got our, this is our folk psychology. We don't make a clear distinction in our language between different types of happiness. Like, and so people often talk about happiness as if it's something you get from a bar of chocolate. Like, and that's a completely different, that's a transitory, it's a superficial thing. It might even be an unhealthy thing in some cases. Like, but there's another type of deeper existential happiness that comes from looking at yourself and realizing that you're on the right track in life. Like, and I think that's really what eudaimonia consists in. That's what the goal mm -hmm. of ancient philosophy really was. You know, not just having a kind of warm glow inside, but really having confidence, like that you're living a life that's meaningful and worthwhile. And that might be painful. Like, you know, you might be enduring some amount of anxiety or stress or pain or discomfort or fatigue, like, but sometimes you're on a roll, like, you know, because you think I'm exactly where I should be in life right now. And you feel that you're doing something that's meaningful. That's the real goal of life, not just having a kind of pleasant tingle, like or a, kind of a nice sensation or something like that. Like, those feelings come and go. Like, but there's, there's a deeper type of happiness that I think, you know, you, you, we, we could call a sense of fulfillment in life. And that, that's really what you, the word eudaimonia means, yeah, which is the, the holy grail, like the goal of, of Greek philosophy in general. Well, I like, so I, like, I like how you explained in your book about joy, and actually joy, like Hercules had joy and he was going through hell. Do you know what I mean? It was joy and being able to do, I like joy instead. This came, that's a, another word that they sometimes use. It's hard to translate, um, but this is, a, this is the other word that they use to describe um, a more kind of meaningful uh, sense of uh, fulfillment, um, even if you're, you know, uh, tired. Like if imagine you're on a, you're, you're running a marathon and every muscle in your body's aching, you know, but maybe somehow like deep, deep down, you've got a tremendous sense of uh, satisfaction like, you know, mm. because you think this, this is the kind of, I have, the way I frame it is you look at yourself and think, this is the type of person that I want to be. I feel like I'm on the right track yeah. in life. You know, I feel like I'm actually doing something meaningful. Like all those clients that, you know, we, we talk to in therapy and, and we say like, you know, like they, they feel that they're not, their life is meaningless and uh, without purpose. You know, they're doing all these pleasant things like drinking wine and taking drugs and watching Netflix and stuff like that but they still lack a sense of meaning and purpose. So they lack a, a, a genuine sense of satisfaction in life. And what they're missing is this ability to look at themselves and think, like, I admire myself. Like, I feel as if yeah. I'm in the right place, doing the right thing, right? And this is exactly where I should be right now. So what another about, question. Go on. What, sorry, one more, because it's a good one. It's got a lot of likes. Contentment. Mm. Again, I think contentment comes, you're, you're never going to have contentment if you get too much into this goal-focused frame of mind. There's a lot of modern research on this in psychology, incidentally, so we, we, we do feel it's quite a kind of endemic problem. Um, you're going to, you only get contentment from learning to appreciate what you've already got. 
to some extent. Contentment yeah. comes from gratitude, like, and from being able to, you know, appreciate like your own potential. But if you get too much into a driven, goal-focused state of mind, you eliminate like any opportunity for experiencing contentment. You have to be able to pause. I think, I mean, the, this is a bit of a digression, but my, one of my favorite quotes from Marcus Aurelius is, if you imagine things that are absent as if they were present, then you experience craving or desire for them. So I imagine I've got a, a Mercedes, like, um, but I, or imagine I've got the latest iPhone, but I don't really have it. Like, so I'm just imagining what it would be like if I did. That just makes me crave it more. And that just gives me a sense of dissatisfaction with the present. But Marcus Aurelius says, what if you make an effort to do the opposite and imagine the absence of things that are actually present? Like, so right now it's snowing outside, right? Imagine if I didn't have any heating, like we didn't have windows, didn't have a roof over my head. Like, you know, and I, I learned to be grateful for even the simplest things in life. Imagine I didn't have any food in the fridge, like, you know, to eat tomorrow. Like, imagine I didn't have any friends. Like, and imagining the absence of things that you do have allows you to appreciate them more fully and experience more gratitude. And gratitude really is a much healthier emotion um, than craving or desire. But it takes more effort to cultivate it, I think. Um, mm. And so the Stoics were particularly interested in making effort to cultivate gratitude, and thereby lies the path to contentment, I think, or one of the paths. So another question would be, what do you really want your life to stand for or be about? I'm going to come back to that in a moment. What sort of things do you want to spend your life doing? What do you think it would actually be worthwhile to spend the rest of your life doing? What sort of person do you most want to be? That's one of my favorite questions. What sort of guy do you want to be, Scott? Like, mm. do you want to be a self-disciplined guy? Do you want to be a compassionate guy? Do you want to be the sort of guy that's a really good friend? Like, do you want to be a, like a sort of guy that's uh, very patient with other people? So that way of framing it, I think, is a good way of kind of getting at uh, your underlying values. What's the sort of guy or what sort of gal do you actually want to be in life? And there are more. How would you spend your time if you only had one month left to live? Marcus Aurelius goes further. He says, imagine you're already dead and you're on penalty time. Like you've got, you know, like you've got a reprieve, you've got an, you know, you've got an extra few days or few weeks, like you're already living on borrowed time. Like what would you actually spend it to, like doing? If this is your last chance to do what's genuinely important to you in life, like it's now or nothing, like to do something actually meaningful and worthwhile under those circumstances, like what would you actually do? Or would you abandon your values? Like if you really went for it and said, this is my last chance to do something that really, really matters, what would you do? What would you be doing if feelings like anxiety didn't hold you back? I mean, like these questions, not all of these questions work for everybody. That's why we have a whole selection of them, right? So it might just be there's one of these questions that allows you to connect with your values, right? Or it might be that several of them do. For some people, the big question is, if your anxiety went, like if it was gone, if you could take a brave pill and all your anxiety just dissipates, what, like, what would you do? If anxiety wasn't holding you back, then what would you actually do? What would be the main thing, the most important thing that you do? So sometimes that allows people to kind of identify what their real values are. Or what would you do differently if you had more self-confidence or if you knew you had no fear of failure? Like if you were guaranteed to succeed, 
like what would be the main thing that you would do? What would be the most important thing you would go out and do tomorrow? Like if you believed that you could never fail at anything, what would be your priority? Like the number one thing that you would do? Like if, if, if uh, fear of failure or lack of self-confidence is holding you back. And once you've identified some of your values, you for some reason, like this question often works. You know, if people go, well, compassion and patience, self-discipline, and then you would say, well, once you've got a few, you can say to people, what's missing from that list? Like, what's missing from that list of values? Are there any, are there any other values that aren't on that list? And often that's a good question. It gets people to dig a little bit deeper, might reflect a little bit deeper on things. Ebenezer Scrooge. Like, so I'm going legend. to talk... Legend. Like, so I'm going to talk about the ghost of Christmas yet to come. Like, and if you remember, I mean, you know, as you say, I like to say stoicism's for life. It's not just for Christmas. But every Christmas, Christmas Carol, the Charles Dickens story, you know, we all see the movie. It's a lot of stoic themes in it. Like, and in particular, it's what we call a memento mori, com contemplating your own mortality. So what Scrooge does, he's faced to, he goes and looks at his own grave in the future. The ghost of uh, Christmas yet to come shows him his own grave and it's an epiphany to him. He realises, you know, eventually that he's got everything back to front in life. I like to say nobody's ever had written in their tombstone, I wish I'd spent more time on Twitter. <laughs> right? I, wish, I, wish I'd spent, I wish I'd spent more time watching Friends. Like, I wish I'd eaten more chocolate. Like, so this ultimate question, you know, of, you know, what if your time was up? Like, contemplating your own mortality often helps you to get things in perspective and to identify your real values, right? So we call this the eulogy exercise. Imagine you're already toast. And, uh, yeah, not to put too fine a point on it. And Scott and I are here at your funeral ceremony, like, and we're reading the eulogy, and we're saying, well, like, you know, the, the, you know, she was like, oh, she was a, a lovely person. She, you know, she went on Twitter a lot and, uh, <laughs> and Instagram and she ate a lot of chocolate, drank a lot of wine, watched a lot of friends. And, uh, oh, would you want us to say something else about you? What would you actually want your life to stand for? Like, how would you like to be remembered? You know, what would you like if there was just one thing you could put on your tombstone? Would it be spent a lot of time on Twitter, drank a lot of wine, or would it be, you know, philanthropist, you know, like, you know, like creative, uh, you know, like somebody had uh, showed real self-discipline, you know, what do you want your life to really embody, like the values that you want to exemplify? Um, and also, like uh, in this example, you know, if you imagine that we're reading your eulogy, it's all over, we're looking back on your life as, as a whole, what aspects of it seem like they were maybe a waste of time? We spend a lot of our time killing time by doing these distractions. So if you imagine this is that your time is up, you're looking back in your life, you know, well, it seems like maybe it wasn't of value. Like, are there any activities you think, yeah, I could have probably done less of that? You know, maybe it was unnecessary to spend so much time doing this or that. And what could you have done instead that would have actually been more fulfilling and more worthwhile? These are the big, deep questions, Scott. Like, if you could do it all again, buddy, like, what would you do differently? We, if you could do it all again, would you spend more time on Twitter? Probably, yeah. Just replying to your tweets. Replying to your tweets, Damon Goyo. My uh, tweets. 
<laughs> it's and good. I know it's good. This is a little bit uh, more of a methodology, this one. This come, Aristotle describes this technique. I call it for the sake of what. So if you ask yourself, what, what do you, another way of approaching this is to say, look, what do you actually do all day? Like, what, what are the things that you're actually pursuing? And then ask yourself, what are you doing this for the sake of? Like, why are you doing it? What's it for the sake of that you're doing this? So this is a really cool example, right? This one's kind of like, you know, it hits a lot of people home. Uh, so say, like, one of the things that you're doing is working really hard at the office, like working long hours. That's something you spend a lot of your time doing, like working long hours and stuff. Like trying, so what are you doing that for the sake of to get a promotion? So what are you doing that for the sake of? Like to earn more money. So what are you trying to earn more money for the sake of? To be able to buy a better house. So what are you trying to buy a better house for the sake of? To look after my family. So what are you, like, what are you doing that for the sake of? In order to be a, a good father. So that's the core value. Looking after your family, being a good father is maybe the underlying core value. And then the other stuff that you're doing is just a means to an end of fulfilling that value. But then that allows to ask you the magic question, ask yourself the magic question, is there a better way of being a good father? Is there an alternative way of being a good father rather than working long hours trying to get a promotion and earn more money so you can buy a better house? Maybe you're going about it all the wrong way. Maybe it's back to front. Maybe actually this is a bad way of being a good father. Maybe there are better ways being a good father like so really digging deep to try and find what the underlying value is that's maybe implicit in some of your existing goals and actions allows you to reappraise the things that you're pursuing maybe they're not maybe you're going about things in an ineffective way a counterproductive way we all do it um, and sometimes we lose sight of the underlying goal like a, a miser is somebody who falls in love with money but maybe originally he wanted to acquire money so that he could buy stuff with it or spend it on his friends and family. But then he ends up just valuing money as an end in itself. So often what began as a means to an end, we, we, over time we, we lose sight of that and begin treating it too much as an end in itself. We forget why we're doing it, Scott. Yeah. Like, we lose sight of the ultimate goal. Like, and then we're nowhere like, you know, well, we're, we're playing Monopoly money in life. We're shuffling around tokens rather than really pursuing the real underlying value. Um, we've lost sight of, the, of what it's all about. So there's another technique that in therapy we call the double standard strategy. And that's simply, you know, you can ask yourself, and I've touched on this already, what are the qualities you most admire in other people? It's another way of getting at your core values. So it could be real people, like your friends, real friends, colleagues, or real historical figures, like Alexander the Great or whatever, or Mahatma Gandhi or John Lennon or whatever it is, right? That's someone that you really admire. Like, what is it you admire about them? Or it could be imaginary friends, or just imaginary people. It could be legendary or mythological characters. It could be movie characters. Like, it could be Dirty Harry, you know, it could be like whoever, you know. It could be Batman, like it could be whoever, the characters in movies or novels, it could be somebody even completely hypothetical. Like, so if you just try and imagine like what the ideal friend would be like hypothetically, what qualities would they have? You know, like what qualities is it that you really admire in Wonder Woman? 
Like, what qualities do you admire in some legendary mythological character? What qualities do you admire in Alexander the Great? It doesn't really matter. It's just a thought experiment. Like, whether the real, imaginary, historical, or modern, it doesn't really matter. Uh, what are the qualities that you really admire in the people that you admire? And then, like uh, Socrates said to Critobulus, how many of those qualities do you actually possess yourself? And then another question would be to build on that. What would happen if you became more like the people that you admire? So if I say to you, you know, Scott, who's your biggest hero in life, apart from me? God, oh, that's hard. Biggest hero. I need a hero. Um, that is a hard question. Three, I got have heroes these days. I got loads of heroes. When I was when I was aged five till ten, it was Bruce Lee, hundred percent. Well, that'll do. I like Bruce Lee. But who doesn't like Bruce Lee? Like, what's the thing that you most admire about Bruce Lee? That he was just full on Bruce Lee. That he was an absolute legend, and he was just kicking ass, and he was just him. So, how would you describe that as a quality or a character trait? Like, what makes him kick ass and makes him? Do you know what I mean like he's self disciplined or he's authenticity yeah. or? The authenticity slash self-discipline slash you could tell that he was a master of his of his art. So if you had the authenticity and the self-discipline of Bruce Lee, like how would that change your daily life? Big time. Yeah. It would definitely change my it would change my fitness for sure. <laughs> and then not only would you be fitter, but you'd also like really admire yourself, right? You'd get self-respect and fulfillment. Like you'd think, geez, I've got like this, like, you know, I've got the sort of self-discipline that I really admire in other people. That's what we're going for here. It's not just the results, the consequences, but the character traits. Like, because there's something else that you get from that. That's what we're mm -hmm. talking about. Imagine you think, you know, like how much you admire Bruce Lee. Imagine you admired yourself that much. Like, or even that, you know, like you, you had a kind of sliver of that. You thought, I can see some of that in myself, man. I'm really proud of myself. I mean, this is what the people that are doing your program, um, you know, your turtles or whatever you call, is it, you call them turtles? Like, <laughs> Like, the turtles, like um, uh, Helones in Greek, like, Helones. you know, like I'm sure for them, like results are one thing, like, but they're not entirely under your control and they don't come immediately, like, but what can, you know, change your life actually is just having the, the, the determination and the self-discipline, you know, in a way that's even more important because that will benefit you over the longer term. And also, I'll let you in on a secret, right? The self-discipline and determination that you need to uh, improve your fitness or lose weight or whatever, it's gonna benefit you in other areas of life as well. It's gonna benefit you in your relationships, it's gonna benefit you at work, like across the board. Like these character traits are general. Like if you develop self-discipline, determination in one area of your life, endurance, like benefits you throughout the whole of your life and in and, and many different roles, many different, like change the, the way you interact with your kids. Like maybe also you become a, a better role model to your friends and family as well. Like, so there's a, a magical value like to cultivating these values. And it's almost like an added bonus that you improve your fitness or you lose weight or something like that. Exactly. You know, even if somehow you failed to achieve those results, like, but you develop the determination and self-discipline, like, in the process, you'd still have gained something incredibly valuable, like, you know, maybe even ultimately more valuable. 
that's the ironic way that the Stoics view these things. It's really the character trait that's more involved, more valuable, more important than the outcome, which is a radical view. Like, and that's the opposite of the way that most people look at things. Most people think self-discipline is a means to an end. They think, I want self-discipline so that I can lose weight. The Stoics would think, I'm trying to lose weight so that I can develop self-discipline. It's the other way around. It's a character trait that's actually more important to them. Like, either way, it's good. You know, they're both good things. But the Stoics think it's the character trait that's actually the real gold dust. Right? So another wee technique I like to do, it's kind of similar to the previous one. But I'll get two, we like to do two columns in CBT for some reason. I think we own a lot of flip charts, right? At least back in the day, you'd have these big whiteboards and flip charts and stuff, and you'd get like, a marker pen out and do two columns. So I would do desire and admire, like, and I'd say, you know, what are the things that you actually spend most of your time doing each day? And I'd jot that down in one column. So we get a list of four or five things that somebody puts a lot of time and effort into, like their desires, their goals. And then in the other column, I'd list the qualities they most admire in other people. And then I'd say, how come? I don't know why this is like a, like a mic drop question for people, but it always is in the consulting room anyway. So we list all the things that they put a lot of time and effort into. And then we list the things that they really admire, like authenticity, self-discipline and stuff like we said about Bruce Lee. And then, and then I'll say, how come these two columns are different? <laughs> and I'll go, huh? Like... What would your life be like? Like, if you took all the things that you admire, that you put in this column, the self-discipline and authenticity, moved it into the other column. Like, what would happen if you put a lot of time and effort into cultivating self-discipline and authenticity? Like, you know, what would happen if you actually worked on those things and made them a priority? Like, studied them? Like, practiced them? Like, how would that change your quality of life? Because you've told me that you think these things are really admirable, but you haven't put any effort into cultivating them. You're off chasing after other stuff, like. But you could be pursuing these things. Yeah, that's a good one, Donald. We mentioned earlier, like this is uh, this is what I look like after you know a few more weeks in lockdown, like Tom Hanks and Castaway. I think actually I've chopped it out here, but you might be screaming at Wilson. Do you remember Wilson? Is he basketball or whatever? He's got, he's got these little. Have you seen Castaway, Scott? Don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe when I was. What do you mean? Another... It's a classic. Is it? Well, I mean, it's it's recognizable. Maybe I've seen many memes about it. I don't know. He's not going to watch it, Scott. It's a classic. Like it's a bit sad though. He is Tom Hanks. He's one of the finest actors of our generation. Like he gets stranded in a desert island. Oh, he's a postman. Like, it's stranded in an island. It's like Robinson Crusoe. And he kind of, like, struggles, like, with the isolation of it, right? So it says Desert Island Strategy. So, actually, I mentioned this before we get started. So there is this big problem of, okay, I've questioned my value. Now, questioning your values this deeply will hopefully mean that you get closer to your authentic values. But, like, sometimes people end up coming up with values because they think, they think they're, they're what other people would uh, praise them for, right? So really other people's values, like, so really you just have to subtract other people from the equation somehow, right? So you may, and again, there's no hard and fast answer to this. It's gonna vary 
you know, different thought experiments work for different people. But basically, you have to remove other people from the equation and ask yourself, would you say, say, say what I really value um, uh, would be compassion. And you think, well, do you though, really? Like, you know, if other people didn't see that, like if they weren't praising you for it, if you kind of remove other people's opinions, like, do you still value compassion? Is this authentic? Like, and you might go, actually, no, what I really value is self-discipline more than compassion. Like, you know, I guess I was just saying compassion because I wanted to kind of impress my girlfriend. Like, and that's something that she goes on about, or my mum and dad, like, or society or whatever. So imagining you're on a desert island is a way of doing it. You know, you can imagine, imagine you're the last man on earth or the last woman on earth. Like, what would your values be if there's no one around to see it anymore? Like, no one's judging you. You're not impressing anybody. Like, you've subtracted that from the equation. Like, you know, would these values that you've identified, would you still pursue creativity? Would you still pursue compassion? Like, if you weren't getting acclaim or praise from other people. So somehow or another, you've just got to try and subtract other people's opinions from the equation and then ask yourself, would I still value authenticity, self-discipline, creativity, or, or whatever your values are? Um, and so then you've got to put it into practice, right? So normally, very simply, once we've clarified someone's values, we normally then just brainstorm a bunch of things. So say uh, self-discipline, Scott, like we would say, well, let's come up with a list of things that uh, you could actually do tomorrow like, that would uh, exemplify self-discipline. Like if you were being more self-disciplined, like what's something that you could do differently tomorrow? What could I do tomorrow? Mm -hmm. Self-discipline. I could wake up when my alarm goes off. Right. So you start off with something really specific and really simple like that, like, and then plan to do it. And then what we would then want to do is, like, usually at the end of the day, look back on it and kind of, I'll come to this in a moment, kind of rate your progress. So did you do that thing that constitutes self-discipline for you? And it might just be one small thing, like, but often that can, small, small changes have big consequences. Like, so you might at the end of the day go, I feel a bit kind of more, so I feel a bit prouder of myself because I just had that little bit more self-discipline, like to get up when my alarm clock went off or I got up a little bit earlier today. Like, you know, so I feel better about myself as a person now. Like, I'm closer to being the sort of person that I admire, the sort of person that I want to be. So preparing for action, you, you might have a lot of values that you've identified, so you prioritize them. You'd ask yourself, which are your most important values? So authenticity, self-discipline, which one's most important? Or you might ask yourself, which ones are you currently scoring lowest on? Like, so... Do you know what? Uh -huh. Authenticity versus self-discipline on a desert yeah. island is a tough one to answer. Which one would you say at the moment you're doing? If you gave yourself over the past month, right? If you were to rate yourself marks out of 10 for authenticity and marks out of 10 for self-discipline, which one would you rate highest? Authenticity. You rate highest. Yeah. So then you might say, okay, so maybe there's more room for improvement on the self-discipline then. So in, like if we're doing coaching or therapy, we might say, well, let's focus how about focusing on self-discipline then, perhaps? Or you might ask yourself, of the two, which one do you think is most important to you in general? If I was on a desert island, I mean, you could you can only be authentically yourself. I mean, what, what are the choices? Like, do you know what I mean? That's you can be self-discipline. Yeah, that's true. 
like well, self so maybe maybe self-discipline is emerging yeah self-discipline has to be there is for life yeah of course right and geez you know like honestly the socrates and xenophon we have these two sources for socrates plato's dialogues and xenophon's dialogues xenophon's version of socrates is all about self-discipline weirdly it's not how we normally think of him like a master of self-discipline like an eye you know a hero an icon of it like so it's an interesting part of our philosophical tradition so another thing you could do is contrasting consequences this is the choice of hercules that we sometimes talk about in stoicism mm. it's this idea that there's like two paths ahead of you like so like the left-hand path would be suppose you just abandoned self-discipline completely like, and you didn't bother cultivating that. You stay with the status quo, or maybe even deteriorated any further. Where would you be a week, a month, a year, 10 years from now, like if you neglected self-discipline, just to pick that value? And then imagine what your future would be like if you really put more effort into cultivating self-discipline each day, even if it's just in small steps and stages, getting up a little bit earlier, you know, doing other things that are more consistent with it today, tomorrow, the day after, so that you are strengthening your ability to exercise self-discipline just through take, making small changes in your daily routine. Like, where would you be a year from now, five years, 10 years in the future? And then thinking about how five or 10 years from now those two paths would contrast. Because thinking about the long-term consequences is going to be a bigger difference. That tends to be more motivating for people. They might think, well, if I'm really self-disciplined, like, you know, I, after one day's time, it's not going to make that much difference. But thinking, you know, if you stick with it over the longer term, potentially you could end up being a completely different version of yourself. You know, mm -hmm. how would it affect your relationships? How would it affect your work? How would it affect your physical health? But also more fundamentally, how would it affect the type of person that you are inside? Like, who you are. If you imagine the consequences, these are two different Scots. Like, which one do you really want to be? Like, two different versions of yourself. Yeah. Which, how many different versions of ourselves do you reckon could emerge? Because obviously there's different physical ways I could turn out, obviously. But in terms of who I am, how many actual different destinies, or like, well, not destiny, how many different potentialities are there of me? Four. Four. That's a normal kitten. That's a normal kitten. But yeah, like, are we who we really, really are when we are feeling joy or like sense of a sense of purpose? Is like that? Is I, that? I, I am. Do you know? I'm going to just say, yeah, like, of course, that's what I think. I think when we're living consistently in accord with our core values, that's that's real. That's the real. That's the real Scott. Like, you know, and actually, like, when you have, like, you value self-discipline, that's what you admire. You know, I think if you were able to kind of, like, exercise more self-discipline and cultivate it, you'd feel as if you were being more true to yourself. Like, that's very true. Yeah. You know, you'd feel as if you were achieving more of your potential in life, perhaps. When, we when we're not fulfilling our core values, like, we feel as if we're not really who we we've got the potential to be. You know, it's about actual, you know, like uh, self-actualization, becoming the sort of person you're destined to be, like the kind of person like that's within you in seed form just needs to be brought out into light a day. How do you get it out into light a day? How do you realize your potential? Like by exercising these virtues, 
self-discipline, mm. courage, creativity, compassion, friendship, integrity. Right? Cultivating these qualities allows the real you to emerge. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. I like it. So we can also break it down into when you're planning, what are you actually going to do differently? Say your value is to be a good parent. You can break it down into kind of general strategies and then more, you want to get right down to specific things that you can go, I'm going to do this at a certain time. So general strategies for being a good parent might be spend more time with your kids, set a good example to your kids. So you can go, those are pretty vague, right? But the ways of being a good parent that you might come up with. But then you might say, well, let's dig deeper to specific examples that you can actually schedule in your diary. Teach your kids to paint might be a way of spending more time with them, right? So you could do that on Saturday morning, like you can actually schedule it in your diary. Take your kids to the beach, you could do that Sunday afternoon, like ask them questions about how they're feeling and what they did at school and stuff. Like, how could you set a good example to your kids? You could stop smoking, you could do that now. Like, you could mind your language, you could start doing that immediately, or there's specific, maybe there's particular situations, like when you're watching a football match or something, your kids are around, maybe you could be more careful about the language you use. Like, stop complaining about things in front of them. Like, on it, man, like, I really think a lot of people would benefit from that. Like, you know, being negative in front of their kids, complaining about stuff in front of kids, sets a bad example, right? Like, so it might be that that's something that you could change immediately. Like, you know, tomorrow, you could go, I'm going to see you, like, tomorrow, like, if I can be more positive, like, think more, stay, say more constructive things about my kids, less negative stuff, like, so there's the general, it's useful sometimes to identify general strategies that would be consistent with your values. So self-discipline, Scott, you might go, well, like, you know, generally in terms of being self-discipline, managing your time, or another form of self-discipline, you know, might be moderating your diet, mm. like, or there's whole like different domains in which you could exit, or you know, working more efficiently, like might be a form of self-discipline. But then you can get it right down to brass tacks of you know, like, getting up when your alarm goes off, or you know, uh, like doing uh, specific tasks during the day. Yeah, I think it's. You can have, would it be easier to self-discipline, health, work, family? Yeah. Mm. You could break it down into domains like that as well in different areas of your life. This is another common thing that we do in therapy and coaching. So what would self-discipline look like at work? What would it look like in your relationships? You know, what would it look like uh, in terms of uh, study? What would it look like um, in terms of health and fitness? So thinking about broad domains of your life, and you might go, I've got self-discipline when it comes to exercise, but I don't have self-discipline when it comes to dealing with my kids, right? So there might be one area where you're exercising a virtue, but other areas where you're not working out so well, right? So sometimes it's useful just to kind of, you know, map out these different, like draw different columns, the, the main different domains of your life, and just like ask yourself, you know, which ones do you need to focus on? So then, very simply, once you've figured out specific stuff that you need to do, like, you know, getting up when your alarm goes off, or maybe, you know, eating healthier foods, or like going to the gym, or whatever it is, each evening, I mean, kind of glibly, I, you know, the way that I would describe it is you just give yourself marks out of 10 for virtue. So, you know, self-discipline in this case. 
So you would say, okay, let's say zero to 10, what do I give myself for self-discipline today? You know, and then you ask yourself, what? say you give yourself five out of 10. So how could I make it five and a half or six out of 10 tomorrow? How could I get it closer to 10 out of 10 tomorrow? Like authenticity, three out of 10. How could I get it four out of 10, five out of 10 tomorrow? How could I get closer to 10 out of 10? So it's, it's just a convenient question to ask to help you focus your mind more on the practical changes that you need to make. And the other classic Pythagorean questions from the, the philosopher Pythagoras. There's a famous poem called The Golden Verses of Pythagoras and it comes from antiquity. And it asks these questions. It says each night before you close your eyes, three times you should review the major events of the day and ask yourself, and I would say ask yourself vis-a-vis -vis your virtues or values. Like say in Scott's example, in terms of self-discipline, what did I do well in terms of self-discipline? What did I do badly in terms of self-discipline? What could I do differently next time in terms of cultivating self-discipline? Right, so those are the three questions that philosophers traditionally ask themselves each evening before they went to sleep. And this is my little plug for my graphic novel. Not really, my graphic novel that you can't buy, but you can get it tattooed. Well, Stuart, Greg, can you, can you send me your favorite design graphic novel? Because they're all, because the lockdown. I think my main thing for when the lockdown ends is I'm going to get, I'll be straight down the tattoo parlor at the end of my street. Did you want me to send you a, a, a cartoon to get tattooed? Yeah, I, I, I'm not a fan of tattoos, but what I'll do is I'll, um, I'll put it in front of my, my flat window for Donald. I'll, I'll put it in my big. I'm making a little making, shrine that you've got for me. Yeah, basically got a shrine for you yeah, with the books. And uh, I'll make it work. I'll make something special. Like. I printed a t-shirt once with one of the panels on it, and it actually looked pretty cool. Wait, add that next to your fancy shirt. Wait till you see. I'll tell you what we've got. I've got an illustrator at the moment, and he's working on something that no one has ever seen before. So when I'm talking to the guys in the military, we always end up talking about how Socrates was a soldier. It was a hot plate. And I'm like, nobody's ever seen that, Scott, because there aren't any pictures of it. Like, there's one or two obscure ones that people have drawn, but there's no statues, no ancient depictions of it. So I paid an illustrator to make one. I've got a historical authenticity. I've got an expert on ancient armor and stuff that I work with as well. It's advising them to make it authentic. So we've got this beautiful poster like, that we're making for our military conference. Like, it shows Socrates, cool. uh, Socrates in armor as a hoplite in the Peloponnesian War. A little quote from Plato, like how he's meditating on the sunrise, like you when your alarm goes off. Yeah. Apparently, um, apparently Socrates had like a, a big nose or something, did he? He had like big nostrils. Um, See, that's his that's his weapon and the armor. Make sure that's uh, that's nice and bigger. He said it was good because like he was better at smelling stuff, and he he <laughs> said he he had eyes. Xenophon says that Socrates had eyes like a crab, like they were kind of <laughs> like bulging. And he said that they're they're good because it means he said I could see I could it's easier for me to see around me. Like, oh, like I've got a wider range of vision because I've got bulging eyes. Why Plato's is even worse. Plato says he looked like a torpedo fish, which is like a, like a manta ray or something. <laughs> oh my god! Wait, he, fish. Why couldn't wise? Why couldn't wise as a crab catch on then, instead of wise as an owl? 
I think we've mixed it up. Yeah. To pee on which fuck it up. <laughs> he makes a metaphor because it's like one of these um supposedly it's one of these fish that can that stings you and it paralyzes you. And uh he said that Socrates' questioning caused aporia, like this uh, feeling of confusion and mental paralysis. So when Socrates was questioning people about what is courage, yeah, but what's it really? Like they'd, they'd end up so kind of like confused. They felt sort of like they'd been stung by a torpedo fish. They were kind of like mentally paralyzed. And, uh, and they'd go away and think, wow, you've blown my mind. Like, but sometimes they got annoyed and made them drink hemlock. <laughs> I need more of these stories. Can you, have, can you add that to the novel about Socrates and the fish and the crab? I'll add the fish and the crab uh, story. Shows you he, he, he got through it, see? He got told he was bad words and stuff. So he got through it. Socrates got through the um the hate. If Socrates yeah. was online, if he was online these days on Twitter, he would get hate, he would get a lot of heat, wouldn't he? He people would hate him. Like, well, you know, the famous thing was they still have the theater, the theater Dionysus. Is on this. No one ever tells you this, right? There's a, an ancient theater on the side of the Acropolis called the Theater Dionysus. And there was a play, we know there was a play performed there um, by Aristophanes called The Clouds. And it's a satire, a comedy that makes fun of Socrates, just lampoons and ridicules him. Like, see, he even says he's like dirty and smelly and pasty faced and stuff like that. Like, uh, kind of like they, they, they were pretty cruel. And uh, there's a story goes that so, like, there were some uh, visitors from another city sitting there watching this play. And they're just absolutely roasting Socrates, right? And uh, this guy turns to the other guy because he comes from Megera, like a, a, another part of Greece. And he says, uh, who is this Socrates dude? Like they're just shredding him like, you know, like on stage. They're making him out to be a complete like total charlatan, like a complete buffoon and stuff. And Socrates is sitting beside them watching the play. And supposedly he just stands up, like, and turns around, like, introduces himself to the audience, like, sits back down, enjoys the rest of the play. Because he was so above it. It's like, yeah. I'm not bothered. Like, like, there's a whole play here just like saying, you know, what a jackass I am. Like, and make it the guy's the guy dressed up as me, like, you know, like ridiculing me and stuff. He's like, fine by me. Like, I don't, it. this is about me, by the way. Hi, it's me. <laughs> You'd have enjoyed it. There's a roast of Donald Trump. He like being roasted. Yeah. The roasting is funny. Like, if you're going to get roasted in front of people, it's a good, I, I, I admire that trait, being able to get voluntarily roasted. I mean, it's not nice if you just get attacked randomly, but if you say, you know what, I like it's funny, carry on. Fair play. Fair play. I get it all the time. Like, on Twitter. I don't have to go for it. So you get used to it after a while if you're on the internet a lot and stuff. Yeah, I think... I, I think if you if you really know yourself, I know we say this, you, you, insults just deflect in a way. Because you're not confused with who you are. Because if you're, if someone insults you, and you make that part of you, and then you get insulted, make it part of you, keep doing it. You really get confused who you actually are, don't you? But if you know who you are, and someone says to me, Scott, you're just like a. Someone will say, like Scott, you're a nasty, you're nasty, you're like arrogant, or like whatever. I'm like, 
no, no, I'm just very direct with my speech and don't mean it in a bad way. And I know who I am and I'm being direct because I, I admire direct honesty. So I wouldn't take it as an insult, but some people are like, shit, am I really, am I really bad? Like I better change everything about me. Also, you can't please all the people all the time. You know, when somebody says something mean to me, like, you know, the first thing I tell myself is that there's 7,999,999,000 other opinions available in the, in the world, you know? Like, there's like, this is just one opinion. Like, I think, like, when somebody says something and you feel very strongly about it, you, part of the problem is you put it under a magnifying glass. But, you know, like, if it was just that one person and then you were listening to the opinions of billions of other people, like you wouldn't place that much importance on it, right? Like so, we forget just one person out of billions. Like you know, is it when I get and also if you want to think about it the other way around, like right now at this present moment in time, Scott, somewhere in the world there's somebody that would think like that you're a complete and utter idiot if they met you. Yeah. Like they they would think that you're like the most annoying person they've ever met in their life. Like, and then there's probably there's there's probably someone else that would think the opposite, like that you're the best thing since sliced bread, right? And so <laughs> some of it's just down to brute luck, like who you meet. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Like, and you need to if you like part of Stoic philosophy, Socratic philosophy, is this trap of we get too focused on the minutiae, like and reminding yourself there's a whole bigger story out there, right? So you meet someone and they think you're a jackass, right? Well, you know. You might have never met that person. You might have gone and sailed through life and never bumped into that particular person. You know, like uh, the luck of the draw could have just been that you met all the people that happened to think the opposite. Like, yeah. um, and equally, you know, you might meet loads of people that seem to think you're the best thing since sliced bread. You know, but there's other people out there that would think the complete opposite, think you're the biggest idiot, you know, like the most horrible person they've ever met. And you just haven't bumped into them yet. Right? There's a lot of people in the world. Like, the import- different opinions. The, yeah, I, I think the, you can't please them all. But you know what? The important thing is to realize that your friends from school or childhood or whatever, if you listen to what they think and what you're doing, you will never go on because they will always say, oh, what's Scott up to? What's he doing with Bruce Lee? Oh, Scott, are you Bruce Lee? Are you like loving Bruce Lee? Like, or like, oh, you think you're a stoic? What are you like stupid stuff? And if you take that seriously, uh-huh. you'll never leave the shackles. Uh-huh. I'll tell you as well, like if I, once you get older, I, I, feel, I feel like I, once you hit 40, there should be like a sort of deal that you have to start paying less opinion, less uh, attention to other people's opinions and learning more from your experience. You've got like, once you hit 40, you've definitely got enough life experience. Like you can yeah. be thinking about things more for yourself, right? And you can look back on your life. Like I like to do little calculations, like all the people I've lent money to how many of them gave me it back over the course of my life and things like that, right? So you can learn from your experience. But uh, if I look back over the course of my life, all of the biggest decisions that I made that really benefited me, especially as someone who's self-employed and you know, like, uh, I work, you know, work for myself, run businesses and stuff, all, all of the best decisions that I've made, the biggest step forward, every single one of them, I guarantee you there were people lining me up, lining up to tell me what a terrible idea it was. Like, you know, people mm. laughing at it, just tell me it was a stupid idea, never going to work. Like all the things that I did that actually worked. Yeah, yeah. And it worked. If, think- if, it, 
if it was a good idea, if it was obvious, they'd already be doing it. Like, yeah. <laughs> so a good idea is one that you think, I can see how this would work and other people can. It's a novel idea. It's an original idea, right? So don't be frightened of other people telling you that something's a stupid idea. Like, you know, you have to listen to the opinion of experts and stuff, but you also have to remember, like, you have to come up with original ideas in life, you know, and if you're coming up with original ideas, other people are going to tell you that it doesn't, it's stupid, it doesn't make sense, it'll never work. Mm. You've got to trust yourself. Like, just, you're not even listening to your parents and nobody, just, just do it, like. And just see what happens. You know what I mean? You can't keep relying on other people going, yeah, mate, good idea, not good idea. You'll be waiting forever. I'll give you an we example. Stuck. Like, Scott, the first book I ever had, I've written like about six books. And the first book, I'm a full-time writer now. I make most of my income comes from writing books and stuff. And the first book that I wrote, know, 15 years ago or something like that, it was now, um, the book proposal that I, I put in, um, do you know what that, the first of a book proposal I submitted, do you know what the title of the book was? Big Donald Explores Greece. No, it's called How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. And the publisher turned it down because they said no. they thought it was a stupid title for a book. <laughs> right. That was like 15 years ago. And then 15 years later, that always bugged me. So I thought, I think it's a good title for a book. Like, I think it's stupid in a good way, Right. And so I found another publisher eventually that published it and became a bestseller. Like, but the first That's publisher nuts. I submitted it to 15 years ago told me they thought it was a stupid title. Like, so I never, I had to wait a long time before I had an opportunity to use it. But again, people you know line up there? and tell you Go that on. things are a bad idea. Like, often it's a good sign. Yeah, I agree. I'm most interested in it. You know when you say publisher... Often it's like one dominating personality probably was like, no, I mean, it's like one person usually. It's not like a huge. Yeah, exactly. So that's another important thing. It's always people, not some godly entity saying no to you. Do you mean? But when, so, so you wrote your, your first book launched. How do you deal with the first set of negative reviews you got? in the face because you must have had some oh, surely one of my books the first review someone put on amazon they gave it a one-star review and they thought they said they thought it was rubbish and that's that's hard because like if you have like 10 reviews or, or whatever and, and someone gives a, a bad review it kind of just gets absorbed and with the rest of it, you get the average but the first guy that reviewed it trashed it like that's bad luck like and then all the other people that reviewed it gave it Good reviews. Like this is one of my books on psychotherapy from a long time ago. Like so I was like, oh man, like the first one. So now it's just gonna sit there for ages on Amazon with like one star, like and like nobody else is gonna buy it. And like took a while before other people eventually bought it and reviewed it and gave it good reviews. But when you get a bad review, like um I think the main thing is to seek out feedback and embrace it. Like, I ran training courses and did conferences for all, all my life, really. You know, all my adult life, I've done things like that. And always collected loads of feedback and always read through it, all detailed feedback. And, you know, there's always going to be one or two people that don't like what you do and then other people that do. So, you know, you learn from exposure to it, like, you know, to see things. All, all, all you need to learn is just to see it in the bigger picture, the wider context. But well, the funny thing is that when people hate something you do, they, they often talk as if um, they assume that everyone else is going to see it the same way. So mm. they won't say, I didn't like 
this lecture or whatever, but maybe other people did. They'll just go, this was a rubbish lecture. Speaker was garbage. And then you turn that feedback over and the next one is, this is the best talk I've ever been to. I thought the speaker was amazing. You turn over and the next one is like, yeah, I thought it was really good. Like, like, but the guy that didn't like it, nine times out of 10, I think, you know, they'll often talk as if, like they assume that everyone else is going to agree with their criticisms. And I, we had a rule that um, if somebody didn't like something about a course we were running, we'd kind of take it on board, but we wouldn't pay that much attention to it unless two people said it. Because mm. often it's just that person. Like, so or it could be something like, they go, oh, they, we didn't like the chairs, the chair, or the room was too cold. And you think, sure, but does anyone else say that? Like, if two or more people say it, then we go, okay, maybe we need to look at the chairs or the temperature in the room or whatever. Or like, this bit of the course was really boring. Right, fine, maybe you thought it was, but does anyone else say that? Like, if two people say it, then maybe we go, okay, maybe we need to look at revising that part of the course. But if it's only one person, chances are it's just there. Okay, right, it's more about them than about um, the thing. What I, what I notice helps with that is, is if you ask people what you could do to improve first and then start reading them, and get used to seeing stuff that you don't necessarily want to see. That helps because, like, first you're giving them a chance to like come forward, as in it's not like unsolicited. And two, like, like the exposure therapy type of thing. Like, the more you get exposed to feedback, that's not because if someone just asks like, you all the time, Donald, you are the best thing ever. You want nothing. You need to change nothing. You, you wouldn't, you would improve. Yeah, that that wears off pretty fast as well. Funnily enough. Yeah. Right. So you, you kind of think, oh, isn't it amazing to get loads of praise? And so you get loads of praise when you write books or you make a record, you do anything in public, right? And it, it's kind of nice. It's not bad. It's nice, but it doesn't, it, it's, it wears off pretty fast. Like, mm. you know, you kind of get used to positive feedback. If you, you, you can't let it go to your head because you kind of hear it all the time. You go, okay, like, yeah, people like your books or they're like, it's, it's nice. Like, but it's, yeah. um, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't last. Like, and you know, you're doing it because you love it as well. So regardless, you're doing it. Yeah, <laughs> so. you have to do, you know, and it, but the funny thing about um, like the, one of the things I find about writing, for example, is I'll, if I look at things that I've written, I'll go, this thing that I've written was really good and I put a lot of work in it. And then this thing that I've written in my mind is kind of rubbish and I wrote it quickly and it's, it's, it could have been a lot better. But it, it may be that, people prefer the thing that I don't like, you know? Yeah. And so some of the articles or books that I've written that, that people like the most are not necessarily the ones that I'm proudest of. Um, and some of the things that I'm most proud of and put the most work into are, are things that didn't really find an audience or maybe people disliked or whatever, right? And I'll tell you another thing is like, if you do something, a talk or write a book or whatever, um, and you're just trying to please everybody, you're going to produce something that's banal like so if you yeah. i think if you do something that's original you have to accept that there's going to be certain people almost inevitably don't like it like anything that you do that's original like genuinely innovative there's like uh, there's going to be some people that go what the hell is this say it's music yeah. it's cutting edge and stuff you're doing something radically different like you're an innovator say you're van gogh Right, there's going to be people that go, "What is this rubbish?" Like, yeah. you know, like, no. but do you are you just going to try and please everybody? Like, you're never going to do anything significant or creative if you just try to please everybody. Like, that's a recipe for banality. 
electronic plays everyone, you're going to produce something that's like boring and vanilla every time. Like, and it, you yeah. should take it as a badge of honor in a way. Like, if some people think what you do is amazing and other people can't stand it or don't understand it, like, because it's a sign that you're doing something um, innovative. Yeah. I think, I think we can. Do you know my favorite examples is Charles Darwin? Yeah, well, I didn't give a shit today. Look at all the shit that he got. People drew pictures yeah. of him all the time in newspapers as a monkey. Like, yeah. they were like, this is crazy. This guy's an idiot. What would have descended from monkey? What's he talking about? What an idiot. Like, they thought he was that nuts. mental. Think about like, Think about. Imagine what he had to put, the, th- how, the, how the thick skin he must have had to have. Yeah. Just think about like the mind, the, the absolute like mind fuck you had to go through because he was like, Am I actually a crazy person or am I being true? And he probably would have gone, Do you know what? I'm true. I, I know what I'm I know what I'm seeing. And he probably would have just gone, whatever, like Socrates in a way, wouldn't he? He must have got to that stage. Again, this comes down to no, being true to yourself, knowing who you are, you can mm-hmm. take any shit coming at you. Because you know who you are. I think it's important. It's like a shield. Okay. Also, maybe it gets a lot easier as time goes on and you get older. I think you potentially yeah. have time you can develop more of a thick skin through exposure. Like as you get older, you've got more time, more opportunity for exposure. Like so it stands to reason you can develop a thick skin. It's also exposure, isn't it? And you've got to take risks as well to be exposed. If you don't take risks, don't take exposure. You're just going to be wrapped in cotton wool, and then. Well, the other thing I find, like you know, with people like internet trolls or just people giving feedback or bad reviews, when somebody says something personal, like an internet trolls, like always kind of assume that they've hurt your feelings as well. I quite like talking to them sometimes because they're like, you know, they fascinate me. Like so, they kind of they 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 always are convinced that they've really got to you and hurt your feelings, right? But you sort of think. But what you've just said to me is nothing compared to stuff that people have said to me in the past, right? Yeah. If you've been around long enough, like, and you've heard all these guys on the internet shooting their mouths off and things like that, you know, and people kind of giving critical, you know, if you're in the public eye and you give talks and write books, like, you meet loads of people that will absolutely trash you, right? And you think, buddy, you're an amateur. Like, you know, those guys have said far, far, like, you know, worse things. So this is like, it just seems like a drop in the ocean. Like, but uh, no, like insult, that, this is one of the things about kind of insults and stuff is like, you know, you, you easily get used to them. Yeah. And it's, it's about, yeah, and it's not, not about always fighting them as well. It's just like, you know what, happy days, enjoy it. Can't tell them about it. Happens all the time. We get like, I, I remember like, I used to get so annoyed at reviews. I think we had a review from our last challenge. Someone didn't even start the challenge. They were like, yeah, signed up wasn't for me. One star review. I'm like, you didn't even do the chat. Like, I could, I could have gone, I could have gone a bit. Like, you know, but it's the same with this one we're doing now. We're doing like martial arts and and a yoga beginners course, and it's it's risky. And like, me and you were talking about philosophy. It's risky, and some people are gonna be like, nah, mate, I'm not. I just want some bootay workouts by Donald Robinson every Monday. I want him to move his hips, but. He's talking about Socrates instead. That happened. That is, that's one of the weirdest ones. There are a surprising number of people out there who... It's worse. You're lucky you don't make movies. Look at all the people that give movies bad reviews before they've even been released. <laughs> like, and people write bad reviews of books that they've not... I see... Those, like, geez, I think, like, literally the other day, somebody was, like, you know, like, like just 
going on a fun one about how they hated my books and stuff, but they hadn't read them. Right. So what sort of person wastes their time kind of complaining about stuff that they've never even read, you know, or movies that they've not seen? But it's weird. It's a thing that people do, man. Like, it's interesting. It's got to be that they admire you and they they would wish to have been the person that did that book. I reckon that's where it comes from. I don't know what it is. Like, I mean, to be honest, I don't even think about it that much. Like, it's kind of, it's interesting in a way. Um, but, you know, you, you kind of get used to it. But, like, also, I think you have to learn to take a step back from praise. You know, I, I, I get far, far more praise. But that, you know, that's probably just been people being nice about things, right? So you, you write a book, you know, if you make a film, and like, you're going to get loads of people giving you positive reviews and praising you and stuff. Like, you can't let that go to your head either. Like, no. and it can, sometimes it's weird. Like, you know, you'll meet people and they can be really quite over the top about it and they'll talk to you like, you know, they know you personally and things like that. Um, and that, that, that seems a little bit strange sometimes. But uh, all of these, the, the pray, you know, praise and criticism, you need to be able to see it in context. You know, I take a step back from it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I got a final question for you. Maybe you can help me answer it. Mm-hmm. If I'm, if I'm being who I am, so I'm straight talker, direct, don't mean any malicious, malicious intent. And I say something that's direct and someone says to me that I hurt my feelings. And I say, listen, you've taken it the wrong way. And they say, stop being so insensitive. Stop it. Where is the line where I go, maybe I need a change or do I wait for them to accept that it's just the way, I, the, the way I'm communicating is direct? Like, do you know what I mean? That's a conflict then. It's like, should I just then be more ins- sensitive? But maybe I can't be more sensitive. The answer to that is that there isn't an answer to it, right? And I think, again, it's like you have to, you have, to have a certain amount of tolerance of the uncertainty, right? Because mm. people have varying degrees of sensitivity, Right, so you you can never go the line. The line's there, Scott. Right, it's right there. Like if you go over that line, it's insensitive. Like just on this side of it, you're fine, buddy. Like it's <laughs> going to vary from one person to another, and you don't know. And so you have to base it on experience and trial and error. So what really matters, what actually matters, like is whether you can adapt to other people's feedback. So you say something that offends somebody. And it might seem incredibly mild to you. What matters is if you do it differently next time. You might think, I, like, yeah. I know that person for whatever reason. This really strikes a nerve with them, right? Um, so mm. you think, well, well, I won't say it to them again like that. Like, and then with other people, maybe you push the boundaries and they just laugh at it and they think it's hilarious. And you think, well, well, that person, I know that I can say that, right? Yeah. So I think it's about being adaptive, like you know and and learning and not being kind of like rigid about it that's the hard thing is being able to kind of observe and adapt like and not trying to to stick too much to a a, a rigid uh rule um yeah you answered it it's good it's good answer it's it's the thing in it's like if you are who you are and you can come across like some people are like I will say like, oh, if I am who I am all the time, I feel like I'm annoying to people. It's like if you are very full of energy and joy, full of joy and that annoys someone, then it like it's a hard thing to then say, well, I'll have to be less of that in the future around that person and I'm less myself. It's, mm-hmm. it's really tough because then it starts changing people. Yeah, you have to, you know, sometimes you've got to decide 
is it when is a change too much? Like when does it become inauthentic and you know, and then what's appropriate? And again, that you've got to judge that on a case-by-case -case basis. Like, you know, it's different for everybody. Um, some people are more able to to change certain traits, like, you know, for other people it just seems as if they're being false to themselves. Right. But there isn't there's not a hard and fast answer to that. And you know, also I think you've got to go easy on yourself. And unless you're kind of like saying stuff that's obviously going to offend the majority of people. Like, yeah. you know, if you say something and it offends one individual person, like to some extent you've got to kind of think, well, you know, there's no element of bad luck in that. You know, you just picked the wrong person to say it to. And not kind of like as long as you know, as long as you're wise enough to kind of phrase it differently with them next time, that's what really matters. But you shouldn't like, you know, if someone gets annoyed and they think you're a really insulting, you're a really offensive person, you shouldn't say that to it personally because you think, well, it's just with you. Yeah. You know, and if it, if 99% of other people wouldn't be offended by it, and I didn't know that you were going to be offended by it, like, well, it's unfortunate that you're offended by it, but it doesn't really, you know, it doesn't really say something about your character as such. Great. You said you didn't have an answer. You lied. You're a liar, Donald. God's sake, it's your virtue, but there's no virtue in that. You're going against it. I'll but tell I, you, there's a really good Socratic dialogue about that. Socrates asks this question about where, what's worse, someone that lies on purpose or somebody that does it by accident. And it's a real <laughs> riddle because they go, well, like, they're like, surely lying on purpose is worth was, is worse than, than lying by accident. And Socrates says, yeah, but if you lie on purpose, you could stop lying. Whereas if you're lying by accident, stop like so surely it's worse to lie by accident like and it's meant to just be a bit of a puzzle i think that one i don't know what he really believed but i think geez yeah well, maybe that's a tricky one socrates what's worse yeah. lying on purpose or lying by accident like you'd think lying on purpose but if you're lying on purpose, it means you're capable of stopping someone who lies by accident is incapable of stopping surely that in a sense that's worse that is worse that reminds me of that reminds me of what the martial arts instructor said last week. So it's like a similar thing. It's like two trained guys face to face, and they got a gun in their pockets. Mm -hmm. I've got a gun. You've got a gun. Uh -huh. I'm trained. You're trained. I if I start pulling my gun out to shoot you, you'll actually shoot me first because your subconscious mind is faster than my conscious mind, even though I've pulled the gun first. So I'm using my conscious mind to move the gun. You're reacting unconsciously, which is quicker. How mad is that? Maybe. You need to put that to a test. Can we show a shootout? Yeah. Like in, uh, we have to have that music, though. You must have seen The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly in like, those Clint Eastwood films. Have you seen those Clint, the Spaghetti Westerns? No. I, I, read, I definitely had those tapes in my in my house when I was growing oh, up. We need to, we're going to have to have a film night, buddy. Yeah, yeah, I think we get you to watch all these classics, and we like, then we we watch Love Island as well, and we <laughs> watch Love Island after. We do it. We've gone goggle box, me and you. Yeah, seen yeah, goggle box. box. Um, I think I saw it a long time ago, a little bit. I reckon we, I reckon we'll do well in that. It'll be a good laugh. We'll do it next time. Bed, cool. Donald. People have loved it once again. So cool. we're learning a lot, guys. These are these talks are deep and long, but the point is this stuff does take time to talk about. You can't just have a five-minute chat about it. You've got to start thinking about this shit. Because if you don't, you're not gonna to get to the true meaning of life. Is that right, Donald? Yeah, we're talking about two and a half thousand years of philosophy. 
So in just three, in just three hours, like that's good time. And then yeah, a lot of people are definitely feeling they're on the right path to joining this group, which is good news. Thanks everyone for tonight. We've had a lot of discussion and it's been very insightful. I've had some breakthroughs. I've actually come up with a new marketing um, uh, marketing message for the brand. So we talked on. Yeah, I can't reveal it right now. But oh, is it a secret? I think I've got a lot of secrets about these things. Like my Plato's Academy secret. I don't tell anyone about that. No, I don't tell anyone about that. Just, <laughs> give, just give them the link to the, you know. Oh yeah, I've got the link now. Like, link to now. I am excited about. Oh, by the way. This is what we finish on. Donald, tell them about the um, StoicCon for Women. The what? The StoicCon for Women, yeah. So we've got a conference about Stoicism, a virtual conference, obviously, because the pandemic, in June. And it's, uh, but it's mainly women, and it's for women. Stoicism for women and by women. Like, and, uh, you know, it's inclusive. So there's, like, at least one male speaker, and men are allowed to attend. And, and, and so it's not like it's all just like about feminism or something like it's about anything that women want to talk about in relation to stoicism. Like we just like generally there seem to be interest in it. And uh, so we've got a lineup of speakers and it's doing pretty well. Like they're selling a lot of tickets. Uh, it's by donation. So you can just pay like a few dollars or whatever and get a ticket or you can donate more if you want. And yeah. it's all going to be online. And yeah, like I, I'm quite excited about it actually. I think it looks really cool. We share the link in the group and stuff. Yeah, that'll be yeah. good. Awesome. Double, double up on the learning. But thanks, everyone. Got See you. Turtles, or whatever going. Turtles, aye. Turtles. See ya. Yeah. Nice one, Donald. That's good. A lot of, uh, lot of good comments. Usually, you know, I guess, a lot of good comments that gone deep. So that's good news. Um, awesome. Yeah, mate.